weekend, everybody. Welcome to the first KFR pod of the year. I'm your host, the slightly above average Scott Bowden. And as always, I'm joined right along ringside by the great Brian Last. And brother Jack Daddy, we are ready to go with another juicy episode fresh from the fryer. Brian, remember the buzz? Remember the excitement when my KFC counterpart in Kentucky, the good colonel of cholesterol himself, Cornette? <sighs> The Colonel, Colonel Harlan David Sanders. Ah, of course, of course. Jeez. Anyway, remember when Colonel Sanders introduced the double down sandwich? I can't say that I do. No. But seriously, dude. I mean, man, do you eat anything except takeout pizza and French toast? Please. <laughs> I mean, this was that gimmick with the two big fried chicken breasts in place of the bun, and so that acted as the the, the sandwich part. Uh, and in the middle part was bacon and pepper jack cheese. You don't remember that? Oh, you mean the um, the Kentucky Fried Coronary Sandwich, right? Okay. You know what, dude? Nine folks died that we know of after binging on these things. But anyway, it got folks talking in addition to dying. And this extra crispy, extra spicy episode is going to do the same thing, except it probably won't kill you. As we introduce a new segment over the next few... What? Oh, uh, wait a minute. Dude, yo! That's what? right, Scott. On the first installment of You Dropped a Bomb on Me, a what? good friend of ours and frequent co host of the 605 Super Podcast, will be joining you to discuss one of the bloodiest angles to ever air on live Memphis TV way back in 1984, as well as his memories as a young member of the Wrestling Fans International Association and being privy to the inner workings of Memphis wrestling backstage at the tender age of 18. And his interactions with Eddie Gilbert and Lance Russell in the 1980s. We will also get Howard Baum's thoughts on Jerry Lawler and the King's reaction when he showed him a copy of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter at the WFIA banquet in 1984. Ooh, wow. And he actually has a picture of that. And man, that picture says about 10,000 words. Most of them we probably shouldn't say on the air. But seriously, you dropped a Baum on me? I mean... The segment I was talking about was Lawler's Lost Matches. You know, the thing we discussed, the King's Bouts outside the territory. This week's focus on the bouts with everyone from Morocco to Matsuda in the Sunshine State. Dude, you spent like 10 minutes of that whole interview on that segment. <laughs> I know, but dropped a bomb on me? Trust me, dude. When it comes to segment names, that is a fabulous one, Pally. You talking original fabs or Rich and Gilbert? Pork Chop and Dream Machine, baby. <laughs> all right fab well if we're gonna get it all in we'd better get going we'll be right back after this often imitated never duplicated message right after this we have a presentation coming up for the tag team of the year this is made by uh, wrestling fans international now the voting is done in the spring and then the presentation is made at the uh, annual convention and wrestling fans international are holding their annual convention this week and uh, they have the trophies for tag team of the year that they are going to be presenting unusual situation this year in that the team that was voted tag team of the year when the voting was uh, cast in the spring are no longer together but uh, here's lance with uh, wrestling fans international Hi, David. Thank you. Uh, I want to introduce to all the wrestling fans on Championship Wrestling out there a couple of representatives from uh, from that organization. Uh, 
head of the organization now is uh, Pete Letterberg. Pete, delighted to have you here. It's just a pleasure to be here in Memphis, Lance. Uh, and, and Howard Baum. Howard, both of you are from Florida. Is that correct? That's exactly right. We're from Miami. Right. Big wrestling fans. All you get back down there, you give Gordon Soley my best, exactly, too, will you? Yes. Okay. You guys uh, are participating in the presentation. We really appreciate you doing it right here. Tag Team of the Year. Uh, Tommy Rich, Eddie Gilbert, uh, the fact that they are not currently wrestling together as a tag team has nothing to do with the award and, and our appreciation of you doing it here, Pete. Well, of course, you know, Lance, the voting goes on for the whole year, and this is this encompasses 1984, and they were quite a good team for the whole year no up till now. question about that. It's just unfortunate they're not teaming right now, but what can you do? They are the tag team of the year. Okay, we want to uh, we want to get uh, Eddie and Tommy out here for the presentation of it, and we also want to say that we hope maybe during the year we're going to be able to disseminate a little more information on your organization and all, so more people will have a chance to participate in it. Too. That would that would really be great. Eddie Gilbert. Okay, we uh, congratulate you. It of course is rather an unusual situation, and I don't have to go into that. Uh, but there is your trophy as one half of the Tag Team of the Year. Lance, thank you very much. Uh, I'd like to thank the WFIA, thank all the people for giving this to me. It's unfortunate, though, that it looks like you'll probably have to take Tommy's to him because uh, maybe you people out here don't realize it, but Tommy is our international heavyweight champion now. He, does, uh, he doesn't come to television anymore to do interviews or, or wrestle here. He, uh, he goes all over the world now. Memphis doesn't really mean that much to him anymore he don't show up here he's such a big shot now and a big man on the totem pole and uh but you know he's the one that turned his back on me he's the one that turned his back on these people and it's still up to me to be a rich and gilbert team but no he's really a big shot but today he couldn't be here because of one reason because he's still probably running from me from the last time we met because he's such a chicken and such a coward brother I, that's that's all trying him so i like to thank everybody for my that's the only thing stopped that we've got a, another segment coming up here right now just, Lance just give me a chance please you know I, I feel like a fool I feel like uh, please I feel like that maybe I have done something terrible and I've done something wrong 
And maybe Tommy was right when he said that I feel like I've let everybody down, Tommy, you, these people, all the little kids that ever looked up to Eddie Gilbert and, and, and I've turned their back on them. I was jealous. I was envious because you're the champion. You had the title matches. And Lance, if there's any way to get Tommy out of here, because, and, and I don't know, I know you could have something to do with this. Let me, let me say this to you. Maybe you can tell Eddie Marlin from now on, there won't be any more matches scheduled between Tommy Rich and myself because he can win them on forfeit. I will not show up. I'll not wrestle him anymore because if Tommy's watching these people, this represents that the people of this country and the WFIA voted us Tag Team of the Year. And Tommy, you're just like a brother to me. And it's taken a long time for me to come around in my senses, but I've been a little crazy and I haven't been right. But now I realize it because you beat my brains out out here in front of these people and everybody watching. And I've been wrong, Lance. Well, I've been wrong and I can admit it. I'll admit it to everybody here and to you. Takes a bigger man to do that. And um, I don't know whether Tommy has any desire to uh, come out here. There's any way at all this promotion that they can get Tommy out because I, I've been wrong. I've acted stupid. I've come out here. I've said things I shouldn't have. And, and I've been, I've, I've just kind of been in my own world here lately, and I'm sorry. I apologize. And if we can get Tommy on here, I'd like to just tell him this face to face. Eddie, you need to get that bleeding stop there. Tommy, please. Please. An unfortunate situation, but I appreciate you being man enough to stand up here on television. You're right. You were right about everything. I haven't been the man that I said I was. You're a better man. You're twice the man I am. You're a former world champion and international champion. And all I'm saying, let's forget it. These trophies mean more to me and these people mean more to me. And you, as a tag team partner, mean more to me. And let's get back together and let's be the team we were and let's have that friendship back that we were. Please. Please. I was wrong. You'll be there. I'm, in other words, anytime I need you from now on, Eddie Gilbert's going to be there. Is what you yes, tell I'm telling you. Please. Just please accept my apology. I'm doing this in front of everybody so everybody will know that I'm not ashamed of admitting I was wrong. And I was wrong. I'm delighted. We'll keep the trophies over here for you. Okay. I don't think. And we are back on Kentucky Fried Wrestling. My guest this week on the inaugural segment of Lawler's Lost Matches definitely needs an introduction. His exploits in professional wrestling are, I don't know, infamous? Uh, Longtime Memphis fans will remember him as being a catalyst for one of the bloodiest TV angles in the promotion's history in August 1984, while Jimmy Hart counts him among his favorite fellow Memphians, despite the fact that he's never lived anywhere near the Bluff City. 
He is the man that to this day is grateful the King did not pop the strap when he introduced Jerry Lawler to the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, forever affecting the territory's top draw and his ability to tell the truth about anything to anyone. That same year, alongside the late, great Jim Jameson, he was photographed wearing shorts so revealing they'd make Rikishi blush. He's also got a certain collection of Memphis wrestling memorabilia given to him by one of my managerial colleagues that some would describe as obscure, while others would probably say obscene or somewhere in between. This resident of the Sunshine State grew up on Eddie Graham, Jack Briscoe, Assassin Number 1, the Funks, and of course, Dusty Rhodes and his infamous belly splotch. This man not only cheered the American dream, but lived it, becoming an accomplished photographer in the industry before eventually starting his own promotion in the Bahamas, where locals marveled over his ambitious yet carefree style, as well as his amazing hair. He's the man who could have the smoking gun in the Mill Maskers Monday Night Mystery, if only he were successful at the CAC gathering in 2012 when he failed to bag the masked man's daughter. Today, he's the somewhat regular, somewhat popular co-host of the 605 Super Podcast with our own great Brian Last. Ladies and gentlemen, Howard Baum. Howard, welcome wow. to the I am gobsmacked, my friend. That was so nice that I'm going to forego my insulting opening remarks that I was oh. <laughs> preparing all day. Oh, man. In, no. in pure Scott Bowden style. Oh. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here, especially after that auspicious introduction. Well, that you know, that sounds uh, somewhat sincere. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Extremely. Yes, yes. Absolutely. Uh, well, you know, and... and I have to say, I, I looked at it again, uh, and I, you know, it's funny. A lot of people say they remember where they were when JFK was shot, but you know, with the uh, with that indelible image in their mind of his head, you know, going back and blood flying. And uh, I have that same <laughs> that same feeling when I think about the Tommy Rich Eddie Gilbert angle from Memphis TV <laughs> in August of 1984, uh, because I was not at home watching. And I was very upset about this. Uh, it was one of those days where my mother took me out shopping, and I, of course, ran to the electronics department. Where it, that, that's, that's the thing about the cultural impact of the Memphis Wrestling Show. No matter where you were, that show was on. You know, if you went to a buddy's house, it was on. You know, uh, even if the parents weren't watching the whole thing, it, people just, you know, oh, wrestling's on. And they just had it on, even if it were just background. And Whenever I was out with my mom shopping at a department store, there would always be a crowd of like 10 people huddled around like the biggest TV you could find, which is not saying much back in those days. But I, but I remember watching this and, and I know I, I just I have to get this question off my chest because it's one that many Memphis fans have wondered ever since that hot, humid day in August 1984. Uh, you were there with fellow WFIA member uh, Pete Letterberg. And to present the tag team of the year. Now, who the hell voted for the new fabulous <laughs> ones? Come on! I think we took an ad out with the program. I believe the fine people of Memphis, Tennessee, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, uh, I see. I see. You might have had a look at your fine print at one of those programs, but uh, I, I think it was pretty legit. When did the voting start? Because... The <laughs> Well, if you listen to Pete Letterberg, it was sometime during the preceding year. 
<laughs> and you know, but unfortunately, okay. Okay. they're not together anymore. But what can yeah. you? Rich and Gilbert were together, put together, thrown together. Uh, right. Some would say at the end of February of '84, they were pretty much broken up by June of '84. Um, they, I mean, seriously, the first family was more popular than the new fans. So either Peggy Gilbert was stuffing the the ballot box, or this whole thing was just a complete work. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, that's what was so odd about doing that angle because Eddie Gilbert was clearly so much more popular than Tommy Rich, and the two of them were put together like molasses and grape juice, and it was like clearly not going to be a long term thing. That's a horrendous analogy. It's, got, it's early, folks. Stay tuned. Um, <laughs> classic, classic Howard Baum way the honest way, I assure you. <laughs> but no, I was standing out there, and clearly the goal of that angle, if you observe it, is to put Eddie Gilbert over as the heel, Tommy Rich over as the baby face in no uncertain terms. But being there live in that building, and I guess for all intents and purposes for this analogy, I'm the Jackie O in this situation – Yes, Thank you very much. <laughs> of course, <laughs> very much so. To yes. your to your person who missed it. <laughs> By the way, sidebar: my that you missing my angle was like it's my angle, but you missing that was me missing Terry Funk beating Jack Briscoe for the title, December tenth, nineteen seventy five, in Miami Beach. We just couldn't okay, get good. good tickets, so that's like that's like my white whale story. You know what I mean? That's my. So yeah, a, lot, yeah, anyway. a lot of a lot of people say a lot of people claim to have either had tickets or they were they were going and then something came up. But yours was that the all the good seats were gone. Yeah, it was the one time you used to have to go down there early oh, on a Tuesday man. afternoon, and uh, I would send my dad down there. Um, my dad had his own business, and I didn't like I wasn't one of those kids like get me this, get me that. So I didn't ask like every week or whatever, even though I probably could have in hindsight. Um, and when I saw a really good card, I'd go, oh, this is tremendous. Superstar Graham, Terry Funk, got to go to this one. So it was Dory and Jack Briscoe. And, um, I was reading in the magazines about all these classic matches and everything. And, um, like, let's take in the classic Dory Jack thing. So my dad goes down there. I'm like, what happened? What did we get? Cause it's usually second or third row. Per perfect for photo taking and all that. Or actually in those days, I wasn't taking pictures yet. My little Trump hands are too small. But um, for the first and only time, couldn't get tickets. I'm like, oh, damn. Then I heard it was the title change, yeah. and that was it. That was the biggest miss of my life as a wrestling fan. You know, because that, I mean, it doesn't doesn't happen. It didn't happen every week back then, man. And I mean, especially that, that's in like, those days. Man, it's like every two or three years, maybe, there was a title switch. And, mm -hmm. and the way... and it's 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 really kind of ironic that the way they the way they did it uh, with Terry substituting and and I and I have to wonder if if a lot of the live fans thought it might be reversed later. Um, I, how big of an upset was that considered at the time? Well, mind you, this is through the eyes of a nine-year-old. Well, yeah, um, you know what I mean. But but. Um... See, Terry, I can't gauge that much because I only started going in August of 75, and he won it in December. I don't even know if I saw Terry live up until then. I probably saw him for the first time in 76. And um, so I can't really gauge, like, you know, how they were toward Terry versus how they were to him as a champion. But as I was saying recently on the 605, 
I think the people were just overjoyed to see a title change. Yeah. Because I don't think today, I don't think anybody under 40 can understand like how rare that was. Mm. Like, oh my God, this is going to be in the magazines. This is going to be emblazoned forever in wrestling history. Like now it's like every other day. Yeah. But back then it was like lightning striking. Yeah. And that that had to be crushing. That had to be crushing for you. Oh my God! I'm still not over it. I'm still not over it. But I did drink Goldschlager with Terry Funk, so it kind of makes up for that, it. That same year? Not that same year. Yeah, when I was nine. When I was nine, my mom turned me on to the harder alcohol. Uh, okay. Uh, well, I obviously have some more questions about the about the big angle that that you were a part of. Uh, but for, and it's fu- it's funny because years later, when I heard your name, I I immediately oh the the tag team of the year angle. You know that guy. Oh man, because <laughs> um, you do. You actually, you do have a very. It's you know, it's one of those little. It's one of those. You know, I, I call them Lanceisms because usually Lance has some great little moment where he just goes, mm, or uh, right. uh, mm, I like that. Uh, you know, right? Just, the head tilt. The the uh, preposterous head tilt. Yeah. Like how dare you? Yeah. That's just, my Bill Wyman from Start Me Up move. <laughs> well. You, when, when Gilbert suggests that Tommy is the international champion and therefore traveling the world, uh, I don't think right. that fits it outside. Outrageous. Of yeah. How dare uh, you? <laughs> uh, and you're, you, and boy, you, you, you kind of went, you kind of go, hey, give him a look like, hey, come on, man. That's pretty, you know. Right. And, that was and your totally. eyes like look him up and down like as if to say, man, this guy's really changed. <laughs> Right. I'm glad you caught that. I'm really yeah. glad you caught that because that was exactly the acting techniques that I was employing at the time. Put yourself in my shoes. You've been out there with those giant Kegel lights, those giant floodlights that are 10 feet away from you. There's two cameras in your face. You're out there with Lance Russell. People are, people are screaming in your left ear. And there's an angle going on that you're participating in and you have to speak and it's live in front of like millions of people. Yeah. And I didn't know what was going on. And I think Pete was smart not to smarten me up as to, I'm like, what's going on? He's like, oh, this is classic. This is my best part of the story. We're back there. And I'm like, what's going on? And I'm bugging everyone. I was even bugging Lance. He's like, I don't know. We're going to see what we, like, he was tape-baving me. <laughs> right, right. And like, and you know, like Lance in the newsroom, which was so cool. He had his makeup on and it was by the typewriters and everything, you know, like right on the other side oh, of the man, uh, hallway. That's... Yeah, that's so that's cool. Sa- that's so sacred. Cool. Ac- that's sacred access. Oh my god! Yeah. Oh, and I'm standing over him, like just asking him stupid questions, like, "Whoa, that Terry <laughs> Funk is crazy, huh?" He's like, "Yeah, for sure." Like, totally, but couldn't have been nicer. You know, Lance, and we'll talk about him yeah. later or another show or whatever. But let me not wander too far from the point, which was, oh yeah, okay. So yeah, you really made, you made the angle, really. <laughs> oh cool. You know, I mean, listen. I'm a ham. We all know that by now. And I wanted to acquit myself out there and I didn't know what the hell was going on. And, um, I just went with my gut because it was a very unique angle. If you think about it, because you tell me another angle that has a really popular guy turning on a less popular guy when the people don't want him to. And the announcer and the guy himself aren't making it seem like it's really happening, especially with the fan reaction. So, I mean, I could react to the like any kind of an angle because every other angle has been done a thousand times. There I am, barely 18, out there with all that stuff going on, and 
one little sly move that I made that this is a little piece of history of the angle that hasn't been revealed before. There's a riser there oh, that man. the desk this, is on, if this, you'll this notice, is like right? The, this, is like, this is like the Zapruder film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is real insight, folks. Um, be generous with your next Patreon for this um, tidbit I'm about to drop. But there's a little riser there, if you guys notice on TV, that the desk is placed upon. So... Um, and I was a communications major, so I was interested in getting on camera and that whole camera thing and everything. And that, anyway, so when I see, I'm looking in the monitor and, um, when it all starts, um, I noticed that I had a split second decision to make out of the shot or in the shot. And I jumped up on that riser right over Eddie's face, or I wouldn't have been seen from where I was. And if you notice it, I hop right up there. That's truly one of the zeprudder moments of that so now i'm on there and i see that it's like a two a two shot of me and eddie so now i've got to react and i'm listening to his words but i'm listening to the crowd his words are tommy rich sucks blah 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 i'm turning and the fans are like we love you eddie fuck tommy so i'm kind of like not giving him the you're a full haste a full um heel routine but i'm not giving him the you're a full face mind you I didn't even know what was going on in Memphis at that time. I just got there. I'm just a kid. So when I got to the back, everybody was like ribbing me like, man, those expressions and everything. But <laughs> I, in hindsight, I thought it was a tremendous job. Oh, yeah. <laughs> on, your, on your part? <laughs> <laughs> no, based on – no, the funny no, – let, let me tell you guys the funny part, though, my favorite part. Um, all day long, I'm like, what's going on, Pete? He's like, no, don't worry about it. I'm like, okay. So we get out there bright lights and everything. And he's like, no, just don't worry about it. And I'm like anxious as hell. And we get out there and then Lance has the famous moment at the beginning of the angle. And Dave Brown, uh, he goes to Lance and Lance is like, and Pete Lambert. And after a day of telling me to come down, he goes, it's just a pleasure to be here in Memphis. Land. Oh. Yeah, and in and my head, I'm thinking, Oh my God, this that- is my captain. This, yeah, he's supposed to be the calm one, and the, and the boat just capsized in the first three seconds of the entire well, thing. Now wait a minute, and now, now wait just a second there. Now I, yeah, you, you're like the Eddie Gilbert, and he's the Tommy Rich, um, because because you got over it, and and I don't think Based Howard on did. The pop, yeah, the, yeah, the pop of it, one eleven. Yeah. The pop of one eleven-year-old girl in the third row, based on that pop. That's that's that was actually that was actually my next question. Whose whose decision was it to let Pete speak? <laughs> <laughs> and I well, at the Pete. time, at the time, mind you, that was a better choice than me because I was about to go into a catatonic state. Man, I wasn't it, already it, in one. It's it's one of those things. It's hard to describe because I grew up uh, watching it and. In some ways, it, it was the moment that I had waited for my entire life when I finally got to go out there with Lance, uh, and the, you know, and thanks to Lance and guiding me and everything, uh, and and me having the balls to kind of go against what they were telling me to say, um, it, it turned out pretty well. But I, I am, I guess, just like a true narcissist, fixated not on the camera but on the monitor. <laughs> I'm looking at the monitor yeah, yeah. as if that's the case. Well, that's why they're there, but yeah. that's why they're there. Uh, I know, mean, why I... would you not utilize the monitor? <laughs> but it was just totally. like, I, I was almost like, oh my God, there I am with Lance Russell. Wow, look at that. And yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, but it was funny. It's funny that you mentioned that about your positioning on that angle because I'm sitting there looking at it today and I'm going, wow, Howard. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, he, they got the tightest shot they could on Eddie, and and they and you're still in it. <laughs> I mean, there's no way to get. I a bet spot. they were trying to. Yeah. We'll have to ask Ken Parnell. I bet they were trying yes. to cut me out too. Yes, I'm, I, I would They're like, get that fucking kid out of there. <laughs> yeah. Imagine Lawler, but no, but they all ribbed me about it later. Like they were all happy with it. Like Eddie's like, what was with those faces, man? But it worked. Like whatever, words to that effect. I can't remember. Oh, but um. Well, and and I have to say, like, um, you know, you might people might look at that today and you might think, well, people probably saw that coming. And in in, in a way I did. Uh, but Eddie was so good. You know, Eddie, Eddie had his, you know, he, you know, a lot of people think, oh, God, he was such a natural hero. He was not. You know, when when this whole and, and part of it, I think, was that you're right. The fans did not want to hate Eddie. Mm-hmm. You know, they'd they'd seen him growing up uh, and they if they were going to do a heel turn, I think, Eddie, it should have been something bigger. You know, uh, you know, some issue with Lawler or his father, something like that. But uh, for it to come, uh, you know, with busting up a tag team that nobody liked to begin with. I think right. that I think that that's pr- probably one of the reasons why he didn't just slide into this heel role, even though he got better. It seemed almost every week, uh, you know, being out there with Jimmy Hart and and the perm certainly, uh. <laughs> certainly. And this is one of the first appearances <laughs> with the uh, with the new perm, which just you know screams. That's, heel. that's correct. That's exactly correct. And yeah. as a kid, I didn't even understand the concept of a perm, and I'm like, how? Did, it didn't even occur to me that like blackjack mulligan has a perm in 82 and i'm like wait he always had like the straight hair never even occurred to me that this perm thing was going on but in hindsight it's hilarious i guess but, yeah, I, guess... I thought it suited eddie i thought it really suited him i mean now that you say it's a perm <laughs> i guess that's not really can't really uh, vouch for it but so the perm was over loud like that so the perm was i over thought he looked you. good like that though no because i shot photos oh. of him his blood looked good and everything because so normal you... hair was very ordinary Yes, yes, yes. Well, so so, so I think that was in a- part. So in part, the reaction is looking at him like he's changed, but also like he's changed. I, I dig the new look. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because he, you know, he came out tougher. He had the half shirt, which was very popular yeah. in 1984. Yeah. And um, you know, so I mean, I didn't know. I was just going with the flow for that. Yeah. And, then, and then we went out, and then Pete and I went out to Burger King directly after the angle. And Eddie was bleeding like a sieve. He had this big oh, bandage. He kept boy. pressing yeah. to his head. And we walked into yeah, Burger King. It's just pouring out. The blood just, I mean. He, it was. He gets, it still was after after yeah. the show. Yeah, and that's, oh, and, that's, and that's not even before Tommy pulls out the blade. And, and for those who, right. who have not, I mean. You I, know what? Well, a lot of people have not seen this angle, although – at least, I think at last count, there's like 59,000 people who have watched this yeah. one version of this on, on YouTube. Uh, it oh, it is without a doubt one of the bloodiest angles ever on Memphis television. <laughs> um, and Dave Brown it's probably is famous. Uh, Dave Brown very probably I, mean, I stumbled into that through magic. That That's part of my history that I got to do is amazing for a kid to stumble in there and live the wrestling fan's ultimate dream of hanging out with all those Memphis guys, being in a famous angle, and then going back and doing it again. What really hurts me is I had my growth spurt like a year after that angle was shot. I was like twice my size. I looked good. I had all my confidence. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm so ready. I can't wait to get out there. They're probably going to make me a heel manager. Oh, I would have I easily been over. If I was even thinking like that when I was a kid, I was like, you know, I didn't have any goals or anything like 
but I just knew that I was going to make up for the previous year's thing. I filled out and everything. I looked good. Everything they require in Memphis, you know. Uh-huh. That explains tight, the shorts. Tight jeans <laughs> and, a, and a mullet. <laughs> I was good and, to and go. I could have been in. I could have been in the second match working Ken Raper in two weeks. Oh, man. No, but – so that was disappointing. And um, what's his name? The original assassin put the kibosh on that. Renesto. He was booking, and he's like, we're not letting those guys out there. Oh, man. Real yeah. And, 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 that's right. As you yeah. know, it's a WFIA tradition. That's, that's, that's par for it. Like, you let the guys doing the WFIA go out, and a trophy gets destroyed. That's the annual tradition. Yeah, yeah. Totally makes sense. And, and so I assume that you were not there for the 79 gathering. No. Yeah. I was uh, a mere child compared to the, yes. uh, some of the, some of the other guys, but I, I regret that I was not privy to that because it looked amazing. Oh man. That's some of these yeah. people have been around. I mean, are Tom Burke and Scott Teal vampires because I like wanted to be them when I was like eight years old and I just, recently hung out with both of them and it's been like 90 years easily since then if my math is correct and they both look amazing i mean well, like scott teal looks like he's 50 and he was like <laughs> doing stuff when he's i was doing, he's, eight oh, like okay. how is that i thought you meant like he's still he's still like doing stuff he's still like putting out all these <laughs> no he's doing more than ever but i mean he was doing the slammogram he was doing the slammogram promotion back then in the 80s and yeah. the 70s and everything i mean I just got a collection yeah. of I just got a, that uh, one of his collections of the Slammograms because I know what an uphill battle that must have been working with Gulas because unlike uh, Jarrett Lawler who saw the value of publicity in the magazines really Lawler was the first one to really develop that relationship with Bill After uh, they were sort of like the Fullers in that sense you know who didn't didn't want the publicity didn't want people really knowing what they were doing uh, and maybe how much money they were making I don't know. But uh, but but Lawler definitely uh, saw the value of it and quickly, you know, it was interesting, even in the quest for the title uh, program in 74, you know, it seemed like uh, every week I think Lawler got as high as number four in the in the aftermaths, which is just amazing that he was able to get Bill to to go along with it, even though I, you know, Jerry Jarrett claims that, you know, maybe there was like uh, Cornette and me and five other people reading wrestling magazines. But I, th- I think he underestimates uh, the popularity of those things because all, all my friends and I in Memphis, I mean, it, it was a it was a sports town without without a team, you know. And mm-hmm. so Lawler was essentially our hometown hero. Now, had you before that trip to Memphis, how much Memphis had you seen? Were you into the whole tape trading deal? Um, I have to think, um, see, it was my very early days. I was really introduced to Memphis when I went to my first WFIA convention in 83. Um, and you know, just Pete Letterberg told me everything that was going on. He's like, um, you know, he was like my, my guide and all this. And, uh, at the, the first one I went to Don Wilson and, um, Dave Drayson were running it. And those two guys both snubbed me big time at every opportunity for some reason. So I don't, it certainly is nothing I could have done. I never did anything to anyone. And that's a shoot. That's for real. <laughs> I don't know what they could be taking umbrage with, but neither of those guys seem or seemed to want to have anything to do with me. But then it's again, hard, to, hard to imagine. Really. I have that kind of face. <laughs> I, know. I don't understand, but, but I love Don Wilson. He was like the Robert Mitchum of professional wrestling. And, uh, 
he turned 17-year-old on Howard. He turned 17-year-old Howard on to uh, Wild Turkey and Coke. It was a it was a tremendous time, and he was running it with Dave Brzezinski in '83, and they did the, their angle when the Grapplers came and destroyed the Fabulous Ones trophies, uh, and they right. did their little angle on TV. Now, I don't know. There's probably bad blood in the way that we attained the WFIA from them. There was a name change. There was acrimony, but I wasn't privy to any of that. That was, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I was a kid. Yeah, I mean, I, I helped, yeah. I helped, print, I helped print some bulletins. That's, that's all Pete. So that, whatever those guys problem was with me, I don't know. I never did anything to nobody. Yeah. No, no one cares, Howard. You treat all your guests this good. Oh yes, my God. Yes, pretty so much. Uh, so <laughs> So let's get, let's get well, let back. me ask you this. Yeah. No, go ahead. I insist. Well, I, I was just thinking about the uh, about the '79 group that was there. Uh, they got to see, man, you could two monumental events. You could have been, you could have seen uh, uh, Jack Briscoe dropping the NWA World Championship to Terry Funk, and also the very first time that the Freebirds came out to their Freebird anthem, mm. uh, which which did not please uh, Mr. Lawler. And a uh, and I guess a, a babyface turn that had already been kind of planned and in the works uh, for the uh, birds was abruptly dropped. Uh, no, and then two weeks later, I was there. It's, it's amazing that because like you, I I didn't get to go to the matches all the time, but in a way that that sort of it turned out for the best because I got to go about six or seven times a year. You know, for uh, if, I, if I happen to make good grades or, you know, first day of summer vacation or for my birthday and stuff like that. So consequently, I, I remember vivid details about each one. And had I gone every week, like uh, like Kevin Lawler uh, got to go a lot uh, with, with yeah. Randy Hales as his personal driver, which must have been really thrilling. Uh, like you don't, fly, you, fly the, you fly don't get that kind of service every day. Yes. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, uh, and it, you know, he, he, he has a lot of trouble like remembering, uh, details, but I guess because I didn't go as much, you know, and I, and I was always fancied myself a writer. It's a, it's a, it's a wonder to me that I didn't get involved in, in these fan groups. I always saw them and I was so interested in it, but you know, it just seemed like a lot to do. You had to like cut out a thing and melt it all off. And, <laughs> You know, it's like six weeks yeah. to get your membership card, and just it was just really the thought of it that. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I gonna no, I think there's a lot. I think there's a lot to be there's a lot to be said for that because if things stand out. And if I went every week as a kid, I would have forgotten ninety percent of it by now. But the things I saw, Superstar Graham and Dusty, and all the things I saw, are like special now. They were so amazing that I actually remember them. Now, what, so, um, what's, what, what is your earliest memory of the sport? Well, I say, and, and again, we're talking like a couple of marks. So, yeah, I mean, it is sport to us, or at least it was then. Right. Uh, what's your earliest memory of it? And were you a fan right away, or did it, it take a little while to grow? Yeah, I was, a fan, I was a fan within 15 seconds. Oh. And if it wasn't for one extraordinary angle, I don't know if that would have been true. Because we just moved to Florida and um, from New Jersey. And um, now sidebar this, I want to sidebar this for later, but if we have time or whatever, but I'm from New Jersey originally, I moved to Florida and I discovered wrestling within minutes of moving to Florida. But if I stayed in New Jersey, I don't know if I would have been in as love with the product. 
Yeah. And I wonder if the same is true for you because Memphis is kind of like its own thing. Well, I don't even think people who I'll let you answer that. Go ahead. Well, no, it's curious that uh, it's 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 interesting that you that you bring that up because I I am very curious to know about not not only your first Florida experiences but also your reaction when you first saw some Memphis stuff because it must have seemed uh, pretty outlandish and crazy. But you know, in def- my thing about it is that I always felt like that Memphis could do both. You know, yeah, the the outlandish gimmicks. Uh, stretched the, the, you know, it, it was hard to, sometimes to check your disbelief at, at the door, even even for a young kid. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I was a big Marvel Comics fan. Terry Lawler introducing the Amazing Spider-Man, his debut soon. It, I didn't really make a whole lot of sense <laughs> to, to me. Um, but I loved it when things, uh, and it usually was, is when, you know, the, the crowds would get tired of, the wild brawls and the gimmick matches and they would, you know, get Lawler back on track for that world title chase. And so it was almost what I would call like a Florida approach or a mid Atlantic booking philosophy in place. And they did it very well. And they got a lot of mileage out of having uh, Nick Bockwinkle only come in occasionally because it was almost like a Super Bowl atmosphere. And as such, I mean, I I saw, you know, Bockwinkle is my favorite opponent for Lawler. Uh, because yeah. whenever he came to town, I was able to convince my uncle that, you know, this could be the one where he finally gets the belt. And, you know, before I knew what a great worker was or what chemistry was, I, I just knew that it was always exciting when when Lawler and Bachwinkle got together. And I, and I love the way they booked Bachwinkle. I mean, if if more territories had done that with uh, with Flair uh, in the early 80s, uh, he mm-hmm. would have been much stronger, I think. And it would not have hurt. Uh, the local mm-hmm. baby faces. Lawler, you know, everybody talks about, oh, all these big names had to come down there and lose to Lawler. They typically beat Lawler three times before Lawler got the yeah. win to close out the program. I mean, he put over yeah. more people, and really, a lot of times, more people with, with you know, maybe, you know, Bachwinkle got some wins with maybe like a pull of the rope, um, uh, you know, or, you know, just a little, just a little heel, heel trickery where he just kind of slipped one over on the King. Uh, he kicked out of Lawler's fist drop numerous times. And even when he beat, when Lawler finally beat Pockwinkle uh, with his hair on the line, with his, with his back against the wall, he sells the entire match, never gets an offensive move then, and finally pops a strap and can't finish him off with two fist drops from the middle rope. He has to go the, to the top. It's an ODQ match. Comes off, that is the one that crushes Bachwinkle. And it makes sense. I mean, this guy's the world champion. You're only going to put him away with one from the top rope. Um, and can he do it again when the title's on the line? And the fans were, you know, a month later, he returns to Memphis. And Cornette, you know, has, has talked about this crowd because the following week, after Lawler seemingly won the title in front of 10,500 fans on December 27th, 1982, Cornette headlined. <laughs> Gets Bill Dundee in a handicap match along with Adrian. God, I hope you don't know this from memory, man. It, well, yeah, yeah, I know it's scary, right? Uh, but and I think I seriously, I, I think I think the crowd, I think it was about thirty-five hundred fans. So a lot of people joke about the biggest drop in Memphis wrestling history. That very well could have been it. Um, well, I just thought of another one, but anyway, that's that. <laughs> Let's get back to to your memories, wow. your your earliest memories of Florida, and your reaction when you saw and and I hope maybe you saw some wild Memphis 1981 stuff. Okay, well I'll I'll, I'll tell you my first three experiences in a really thumbnail 
version. First exposure to wrestling, we were staying at my aunt's apartment on the beach in Miami before our house was ready. 1974, they ran an angle in uh, out of the Olympic at the L.A. Wrestling, and um, it was like usually watching that show after that, it was all boring. It's like no, nothing exciting ever happened. It was like a three out of five fall, Coloso Colosetti against Tony Rocco that took nine hours. It was it was torturous, but it was only watchable because it was exotic wrestling. It was not from here, and it, you know, so it was at least it was wrestling, and you know, you watched it because you had to. But it sucked, except the first time I ever watched it in a in a bolt of of fate, it was the angle the night that Sir Oliver Humperdinck nearly lost an eye. It involved Louis Tillette, Sir Oliver Humperdinck, the Hollywood Blondes, um, maybe one or two other people. But they had this humongously bloody angle, the likes of which I've never seen on on LA TV before or since. Obviously not before, but since. And it was such a rare thing for the time for such a famous angle. And I said to my dad, what is this? And he goes, this is wrestling. That was experience number one. I was immediately hooked. Like I was already into it before that angle happened, but that angle happened like five minutes later. So I was like, wow, what's this? And then that happened. I'm like, oh my God, that's my thing. This is my thing for life. I knew it. <laughs> it was like, you know, when, when normal people hear their first Kiss album or something, that was my yeah, moment. Well, yeah, that was yeah. my Kiss Alive moment, you know? Yeah. Like, oh my God, that's my thing. So there I was, eight years old, and that was it. I got injected, and then I had no choice. Magazines followed and everything. Then a buddy of mine, who was like a cool kid in third grade, one of my first friends I made down here, and he's like, we're all going to go to wrestling. And my family... Um, was not going to let their precious Howard out of their sight to go down in the neighbor's Camaro to the Miami Convention Center. So my dad's like, I'll take you. And that's how we started going to the live matches. August 10, August 16th, I want to say. I'm not quite as... Uh, not quite as... Um... <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I don't want to say anything bad. I don't know what you can say these days. Uh, I don't know what you can say these uh, days. I don't have yeah. the same head for numbers as our host does. Ah, uh, okay, all right. Well, or that I, he has Asperger's. Yes. Anyway, yes. you know, it, um, anyway, Dick's really, Dick's no, really dig we, my my I, amazing I, recollection of specific dates in relation to Memphis wrestling. That's opened a lot of doors for me. <laughs> okay, I can imagine. And you know, the ladies love that stuff. Oh too. yeah, so man. It's, it's, hey. It's, uh, that's a double dip, my friend, in anybody's book. <laughs> but I don't. I obviously saw the TV show first, and um, I go to my dad. Oh my God, they have this here too. Because my dad didn't tell me, or I saw him watching it, and I was like, they have this here too. He's like, yeah. And then my friend said, let's go, and they wouldn't let me go with the strangers. So my dad started taking me, and my dad was a fan before that. He used to go to the Laurel Gardens in New Jersey. He used to see Buddy Rogers. Ricky Starr, uh, Gene Stanley, Mark Lewin, all those guys. So then I started buying the magazines. I'm yeah. eight, nine years old. Mm -hmm. And at around that time, it was formed in my head that I was going to be a wrestling photographer because I was fascinated by those best of magazines where they had like the greatest photos all put together. Yeah. And like, I was uh, asking yeah, my dad, like, like, the, like the picture, picture books and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was the whole history of wrestling there in a nutshell. So I was like, I'm like, I go to my dad, who are the, who are the violent brothers? He's like, no, that's the valiant brothers. And he, <laughs> he like told me the whole, you know, yeah, he told yeah. me the whole like 
deal. I'm like, who's the sheik? This guy looks insane. So based on the magazines, I thought everyone was like a, a certified murderer, like the sheik or Abdullah, King Curtis. And so I was just entranced. It was like comic books come to life for real because these people were just not from here. Yeah. And to me, it was not about, is this, is this real? It was just, who are these guys? What kind of life do they live? And I want to know more about it, like the whole yeah. entire thing. So real fake or being a fan of anyone really was second seat to being just infatuated with the whole workings of the business and becoming a wrestling photographer, which I might add, being professional wrestling, you can be a paid writer, photographer, whatever, as a mere child. I can't think of any other industry that has such lax um, entryways into their um, print and audio world. Yeah, well, yeah, um, and I guess I guess I followed the same formula that I did back in back in school, which uh, I would just submit, you know, these these written reports to the Aftermax for free, <laughs> and never make a dime off your wrestling writing, which has sort of been the case for me thus far. But uh, <laughs> although although I do have do have something I'm going to announce very soon that uh, that could change that, uh, but that's I mean, that's that's very similar, I guess, uh, to to my experience, and I and I love the magazines and it was just so cool when when a guy who you've built up in your mind like the sheik or whoever mil mascaris in my case right right yeah you, you feeling yeah, me, me on, are you feeling me on mil mascaris I, I hope i hope in your case unless it was uh, el topo <laughs> one of the local uh, guys from huntsville <laughs> all right all right it was not pepe lopez i'm just saying he, he, but wait a minute there were, how could there have been no photos of that particular match i i know i know it was crazy i mean Cornette was the main that guy even make sense he didn't i and it, what's weird about it it's like i just discovered you know all you know this uh, uh i guess a google folder with all of these bulletins that terry justice used to put out and and a bunch of the old, you know, from, from just all, uh, from a few different people from 1979, and for whatever reason, like Norm Dooley would write, because it's supposedly, you know, Jerry Jarrett said, oh, I had so much respect for Mill that I didn't air it on Memphis TV, and he did not, but he, you know, the the footage did air uh, on Jack Eaton's uh, sportscasting report on Tuesday afternoon, and oh, Mark wow. James it's even worse in a way, and Mark James and I both have a memory of, of that, uh, but of course they didn't save their broadcast back then either uh, because the tape was so expensive and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it's, it's weird that most of the, most of the photographs from the program, if you look at that time period, they were just, they were on, on repeat. I don't think they had a steady Memphis photographer uh, at that point, you know, Cornette would come for some of the big shows, but he didn't find out about, you know, the appearance came about, you know, whether you believe, you know, whether you believe it was really meal or you think it's a ring or whatever, uh, it was a very late switch in plans to not only add some somebody wearing a mask with a big M on it uh, and Jackie Fargo uh, to the program. So uh, I think uh, Jarrett and Goulas, because that, that, you know, they had to bury the hatchet first. So you could argue that even though the Mexican angel who uh, that's on the Tennessee Athletic Commission report as being the man under the mask that night. Jarrett says, well, why would I get Mil Mascaris to pay $25 for a license that he'll never use again? Which also sort of makes sense. Uh, <laughs> but, but anyway. Yeah, especially what, what, in those days. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so, but what, I guess my point is, though, 
these guys would be larger than life. And then if they actually were coming to your area, it was like, oh, my God, I, I got to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Florida, man, yeah, you know, gosh, at one time or another, every big name in the business came through there. Yeah, Florida was a feast of riches, which is why I say, like, you know, um, I grew up on Florida. But if I grew up, I mean, you know, I was always into weird stuff, monster movies. I missed yeah. the comic book gene that all you guys seem to share. <laughs> um and did I didn't like, really did you get like Kiss? music. Huh? Did you like Kiss? I'm not. See, I was a no, huge I'm not Kiss a big fan. Kiss fan. You know, okay. I mean, right. I was, right. I was, I was even into deep, weird stuff as a kid. So I was into like freak shows and carny lore. So wrestling fit right in with that. I like monster movies because wrestling was like a real life um, cinema of the grotesque. <laughs> And so, uh, you know, like I was just, I was dying for the bloody angle. I'm like, oh, this is where, whenever you saw two guys out at the desk talking to Soli, you knew something immediately was going to happen. I mean, they never didn't do it to show you that sometimes they could do it without a fight erupting. It's like every time there would be two guys standing in such a way, like you knew they were going to fight. So I told everyone, all right, be quiet. This is going to be a thing. And it was an angle, but they always did it the same way, but it was so simple back then. Because everybody thought it was real, so you didn't have to go through these elaborate productions to get to the this guy doesn't like this guy. Right. Right. So that's that's it was just so much more compelling. And it was never about being real. I'm just like, who is this big blonde guy with scars on his head? Not even talking about Dusty in particular. That could have been Superstar or No, it could have been Superstar or Luke Graham. I I was just fascinated with all these guys that seem to live this alternate lifestyle that are larger than life. Yeah, who who is Tor Kamada? What does he do on the weekends when he's not wrestling? <laughs> or, uh, or, or, you know, and you guys had LaDuke uh, come through there. Who, you know, that, mm-hmm. that's the thing about, about Memphis, man. Just all shapes and sizes of characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't even get me started about Little Beaver. Um, <laughs> and all, and you that's know, just and, the first and, two rows. Hey, ho! Why did I know that but, you were going to? See, people are going to think that I fed you that line, but I just, I knew, <laughs> I knew, I knew that you were going to have something there. And uh... oh, not when you're, not when you're with the master ad livers <laughs> in the business, my friend. It's the bad boys from the Arcadian Vanguard. You know, I don't even, um, I don't even have it. I don't even have a defining moment where I just went, "Aha!" It, you know, it, it must be fake. It was just sort of this yeah. because people would, you know try to ruin it for me you know my dad right. I think, like my dad's the one who i think you know probably ruse the day that he ever would you know he watched it every saturday he would never go to the matches he, he i only was able to get him to go once for a nick for a nick bockwinkle appearance uh but uh other than that and then he had he was like okay that's it you know your uncle's the man and my and my uncle didn't have children at the time and he wanted to be that cool uncle so that was uh right. that was that was his spot but uh, it was just one of those things where I just, you know, gradually there was never like a thing where it was like, oh, you know, like a like a light switch went on that 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 it was fake. Um, and I think that, you know, when I look back at news stories that covered legitimate, you know, like Tom Snyder's report on Memphis wrestling, they came the closest, I think, to doing a good job because the real story is the lifestyle of not only the boys, but the fans at that time. And, you know, mm. they they follow that the, the the female cashier around. I can't remember what her name is now. The, the woman with the beehive hairdo and the whistle who is she would bug the hell out of me uh, during right, the night. Right. Always, you know, but she's a character and she's it's like a, right out of a Christopher Guest movie, but real. But then eventually yeah. 
it sort of fades into that. Is this real blood and is it fake? Does it, which is just astounding right. that they that real journalists would waste their time uh, doing that and exploring that when, my goodness, man, I mean, other than uh, 12 year old children and, and blue haired grandmothers, I mean, who, who really thought that it was real and who cared? Yeah. I, mean, well, they, I think that was their excuse. It was kind of like their excuse to trot out wrestling because they knew it was popular. They didn't want to admit it. So they're like, they had to frame it as news, even though, even though that, it was on Tom Snyder's show. Like it was an expose or something. Right. They have to, because what are they going to say? Like, here's something for you bumpkins. <laughs> Enjoy. I get, you know, I, I get, but I, I remember asking Jerry Jarrett about it and he didn't have much of a, of a response other than uh, it was not what I expected. <laughs> um, and, but I, I, I love that, you know, and they, and they butcher, you know, they probably conducted a hour long interview with, with Jarrett and Lawler. And I think only two of Jarrett's lines made it in, but one of them is just, uh, amazing because wrestling fans are the forgotten masses. <laughs> right. It's like a Johnny Cash line. Oh my gosh. Uh, and, and, and later, and eventually, you know, when, when I was interviewing him for our first podcast, I, I, I used the term Shakespeare for the masses and he loved that. But really that was, uh, I think yeah, I heard him refer to wrestling as a Shakespearean play. And if you really look at his approach to booking and the storytelling and the personal issues, I mean, the, there are, are themes lifted from that. Um, mm-hmm. and, and even 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 the you know, it, it's a bizarre. I was talking to a guy who grew up on Boston, you know, grew up in Boston and was a big WWF fan. And he was amazed to learn that during the whole quest for the title thing, when Lawler was knocking off these contenders, that Lawler was a bad guy. You know, he just assumed. Yeah, and that made it so cool. Did that yeah. not make it so cool? Yeah. No, it he's did. He's a bad it... guy, but he's, knocking off, but he's knocking off the famous heels. Dick the Bruiser, who was not a heel at that time, but still known as a heel. The Sheik. You know, and he's the heel. So, of course, they're going to start rooting for him because he's the hometown guy now. Yeah, and and, and then he went so on to was, be... The... That made him look... That was Lawler's badass period. Yeah. When he did, it... when he did that run for the title and he was beating the legends... Well, I mean, I, I, I think Lawler was just, uh, um, you know, one of the top 10 workers, um, if not the world, then definitely in the United mm-hmm. States between probably 74 and 79. I do think that he, that, uh, and others have said that he lost a step a little bit coming when he came back from the broken leg. Um, but you know, which is not to say that he didn't have some outstanding matches after that, because he certainly did. But uh, and one of the one of the biggest moments of my life that that I'll just it's one of the it's like from from the moment we got into the parking lot to buying the tickets to walking the farthest we've ever walked up to the Mid South Coliseum mm-hmm. we got tickets just in time for Lawler's comeback match uh, in in nineteen eight uh, to close out nineteen eighty on uh, I believe it was December 29th. and that place I mean people were sitting in the aisles and I know I've referenced this but we just celebrated the anniversary of it. Um, uh, that, I mean, I, I just thought the roof was going to blow off the building, um, <laughs> when Lawler and he, and Lawler was imitating a kiss entrance that he had seen when he came up through the stage. Uh, he had oh. seen, yeah. So, you know, there's that, uh, there's, but the, you know, that, that stands to reason that Lawler would be a big kiss fan because yeah, they, were, they, yeah. were like, they were, they were like superheroes who played the guitar and then they even had their own Marvel comic book. So, uh, right, right. But uh, so, w- tell me about the first time. That, now, obviously, you're a big fan of the Florida style, which you know they would have these bloody personal feuds too. And Eddie Graham is known as one of the, one of the best bookers. 
And Jarrett calls him flat out the best finish man that he's ever known. Um, and that, you know, he copied a lot of Eddie's finishes and then Dundee took those same finishes to Mid-South and, you know, they did record business there. Um, but they, I think I, w- I think I would have really been a big fan of the Florida style because, you know, I was one of those geeks who not only was I buying the wrestling magazines to see if Lawler was featured or whatever, but I was really keeping an eye on the ratings, you know, uh, because we didn't have a team that was on the verge of making the playoffs or anything. So this was it, you know, and it was just always a big thrill if I'd seen him jump in the ratings and that kind of thing. And when they switched from <laughs> NWA to AWA and he's suddenly in the top four after his first bout with Bachwinkle and you think, man, any, any day now, he's just gonna, he's gonna, uh, upset Bachwinkle, uh, for, for the, for the strap. Uh, I loved it when they, when they had that approach, when Lawler would, you know, put aside personal feuds and, and go after the championship. But for the most, for the most part, it was, you know, blood and guts and gimmick matches, cage matches, coal miners glove on a pole matches. Uh, what is your earliest memory of Memphis and with its different style and with the, with the, with the titles almost seeming uh, to change every, hands every week, which also didn't happen. Right. In Florida. Uh, what was it? What right. were your thoughts on that? Um, well, I was 18 at the time, or 17 at the time, because that's the year before we took the thing over, so I'm 17, and I didn't know a thing about Memphis except whatever I saw in the aftermags, and um, I didn't even know how to say Lance Russell's name properly. I don't think I ever heard of Lance until either after <laughs> or right before I met him. No, wait a, wait a I minute, mean, wait think... a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, I can understand solely being hard. Okay, how many times How many times was Lance in the in the After magazines in 19, <laughs> up until 1982? Yeah, but what, many... puzzled, what puzzled you about Russell? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, Backlund, I, I used to say Bob Blackwell for some reason, uh, you know, before I heard his name on television. You know, as a kid, you're trying to, I like, know how to say it. I know how to say it. Don't worry yeah, about it. You know, I'm, I'm like no, because gr- there's, no, because the thing with me is I have like 10 stories in my head for every syllable that I utter. So it's like I can go in so many different directions at one time. So I'm trying to narrow it down to something that a human can understand because I could write 25 books just in different directions of psychology and things that happened. And what about this? What about that? So I try to keep it to a certain uh, topic whenever possible, but hey, bring the thing it is, I got bring there. It, bring, bring intelligent Howard back there. <laughs> I like to bring it back home. And, and, uh, so I probably found out who Lance was after I met him for the first time. I was not familiar with him and I had no idea what to expect, which in a way is the purest way to experience something yeah. because from the minute I got there from whatever first show we went to, which I want to say was Jackson, Tennessee, just now witnessing wrestling in other territories, mainly Florida, but some other groups that came through Florida and being used to that style, being in Memphis, okay, the wrestlers and the fans uh, banter with each other and stuff, but in Memphis, it just took on a more homey, comedic, like, um, I don't want to say cartoony, but everybody was very colorful, and I mean that in a good way. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed to have a certain charm to it. I think that's the best word I could use. Yeah, Memphis had a charm to it Yeah, that you don't get in Florida. In Florida, the first match came out. They were serious. Gordon Nelson, Reggie Parks, they wrestled. 
medium match. You might have an angle, main event, blood and guts. But you didn't have a Jimmy Hart going, you shut up, you cracker. Or you didn't have any of that. Those natural personalities, both in the audience, behind the scenes, all the Joe Coffees, all the uh, Eddie Marlins, <laughs> Randy Hales, all those people that made it such an immersive experience. Like we show up at the building and we're hobnobbing with Lawler and then Gilbert and then Lance and then just the whole camaraderie of it. Yeah. And I don't Buddy know Wade, it was kind of like. Be- did you meet Buddy Wayne? Oh, like that? that's another guy. I regret uh, that I never met him because that's like oh! a classic Memphis face. Oh! You know, like a classic Memphis face, classic Memphis guy. That's exactly who I'm talking about. He like is, a dyed in the wool. Yeah. He's you a know? classic man. I mean, I, I love Buddy. Uh, and I just, every time I saw him, he, 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 he'd tell you what was, what was killing the wrestling business. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! I just uh, he he was just he was just great man. I, I hated yeah, guys like at, that. I hated working his spot shows, but but because he would take like thirty minute intermissions, <laughs> so it, with the, with the theory that people will get bored and they'll go buy some popcorn, right? But, <laughs> which is probably true. Yeah, but those classic Memphis personalities, and believe me, the people who ran Miami were dour. Duke Tanaka, his two sons who were assholes, Pat Tanaka, and his. His other son, uh, Chris, I want to say, but don't swear me to it. It's Chris Dundee. Never saw any of those people smile, not even once. My good friend, the ring announcer in those days, ring announcer, bell keeper, Bruce Owens, he was a great guy, and he took me under his wing, and he kayfabe me on how to act ringside, like, when they come out. Bruce is like a low talker, so he's like, when they come out, you just if they start fighting behind you or outside the ring, you just lean over the ring, and they're going to go around you. And that worked until halfway through my th- first card when John Studd didn't know I was there and almost crushed me oh, man. between him and the barricade. And all I saw was a close-up of his back that looked like a canvas that I was three inches away from. All I saw was his pink and white bumpy back. And it was my first show shooting. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, it's going to end right here and now. He doesn't know I'm here. And he's actually working with somebody. And I'm behind him. And I'm like, oh, man, if he gets backed into this corner, that's it. Uh, and so you know i'm kind of curious about you know you said you were about 18 uh or or just turned 18 when you were in memphis and but you were allowed backstage which i mean you may have been backstage well no i I guess at that point yeah yeah Cornette was already in the business but i mean he was not allowed backstage until he was officially made a manager and he had been taking photographs for years. What was it sort of accepted that, that you guys uh, being the WFIA um, were smart to the business or I I'm almost amazed that even Pete knew about the angle. I, 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 I just assumed that neither one of you knew. And well, that Pete claims Pete, Pete's contention is that he invented the angle. I don't dispute that, but he claims he invented the angle. He he goes oh, way he goes minute. way back. Wait a minute. Well, his, no, you can listen. No, you can listen to his appearance on the six oh five. He takes full credit for coming up with that angle because he's like, well, Eddie was going to do this, and I'm like, well, why don't you just do that? And Eddie's like, great, let's do it. So Pete well, contends that he invented the angle. I could I'll find the okay. six oh five for you, but no, 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 or maybe no, it was what? on Barry's show. Maybe it was on Barry's show. You know what? I. Um, they- Wait, Barry and with, with, with Eddie Gilbert being yeah that other guy, <laughs> people confuse me with. They're like, man, 
that guy's podcast, he's so interesting and just has so much insight, you know? Uh, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, thanks, man. He goes, man, you, your knowledge of Florida. And I'm like, oh, oh, you mean Bowdrin. And you're, oh, yeah, yeah, your yeah, partner too. Yeah, wrong guy, wrong guy. Oh, yeah, we like KFR too. What's that? Okay. Uh, <laughs> but uh, So, yeah, yeah, I mean, I can't I can listen. With, I can see with Eddie, people, though. Yeah, Eddie, Eddie, Eddie would listen to Pete. Yeah, I, I can see because that's – Dude, well, here's I mean, the thing. As far as getting backstage and everything, the first um, uh, we were close to backstage. The first time through is just fans or whatever. What you say about the WFIA thing? I don't know if they thought we were smart or not, but they certainly acted like it. Because Lawler had no compunction about talking to us like we were friends for the last twenty years. Yeah, and way, I he just has, couldn't he has a way it. of doing that. He has a way of doing that, which is just, oh my god. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And, uh, I mean, it's just like, oh, the house was down last night, and tonight we're bringing this guy in. Like, I mean, like, we're – like, I came up there as a representative from Eddie Graham or something. And I'm like, right. this is not right. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, what? I'm 18, and he's, like, telling me these stories, like, when he got um, – he missed his ride or his car broke down or something, and he was in some small town, and he had to get back the next day for TV or something. And he's like, I'm in a small town. And this is like the first thing Jerry Lawler ever said to me. It was at one of our, it was at the, um, one of our events. And he was sitting next to me and he just leaned over. And he starts talking to me and Pete, but I was closest to him. So he was really like right in my face telling me. And he goes, um, he goes, now I'm at the bus station. I got my crown in my bag. I got my gym shorts on. I got my outfit in my bag. And everyone, every hobo in town is coming up to me like, are you Jerry the King Lawler? He's like, no. Yeah, which is kind of hard. Yeah, with the go with the crown shaped goatee, <laughs> with the I goatee mean, and everything. That's yeah, that's hard to say no. <laughs> and I'm like, he used a few other choice words to describe the denizens of the actual bus yes. stop. Uh, I'm yes. like, oh my god, this guy, this guy doesn't even know me, and he's talking to me like this. This is insane. <laughs> and if I had the wherewithal, there's nothing he wouldn't have told me. I was just like staring at him, with my eyes like saucers, like, oh my god. The biggest guy in the whole goddamn territory is talking to me like he knows me. What the hell's going on here? So everybody was so cool to us. I mean, Lance had to know what an idiot I was back then, but he could not have been nicer. You know, the, and, you know, um, it's 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 funny because uh, Lance is so easygoing, and he, you know, Dave Brown claims that that they they had never exchanged a crossword and all that kind of stuff. And and, and Lance and I got along great. But I rubbed him the wrong way one night, and I just I don't think I don't I don't think I uh, I don't think I've I don't think I've told this story to anyone. Uh, but it just stands out because we were it, we were in the back, and I was just I hated when Hogan came into WCW and everything was changing, and Flair was doing all these jobs, and and Flair lost the re, the retirement angle, and I guess I just you know I had some of that mark in me where. You know, well, now he's going to have to like sit out for at least a year and done it because stipulations, I guess, to me, still meant something. And I just I just thought, man, why would why, why would Flair agree to do that? I mean, does he does he really need the money? Which, you know, <laughs> uh, knowing what I know now. Yes. Yes, he did. Right, right, but, right, but, right. But Lance cut me. He goes, hey, how do you know what he needs? And I just went, whoa. Uh, I love that. Seriously. Yes, he really did. He, See, I, like, I always, I always, have, it, I always it was wondered. quickly forgotten. It was quickly forgotten after that, you know, but he's, yeah, he's, nice. Cause you know, okay. He's a human being. You know, he's got to have that inside him. And, uh, I know his kids a little bit 
And I just always wondered, like, what about when Lance got mad as a dad? Like, I'm sure we'd think that was hilarious. Uh, yeah, that, but, and that's I mean, exactly what he, it was like. I mean, but I'm sure he would lay down the law, like, in a Ward Cleaver way where, like, you know, like. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, you, put you some, know, I mean, he's a all, human he, being, Lance. Uh, he, at the end of the night, like, yes. I mean, he puts his arm around me and goes, you know, Scott, why I corrected you in front of the boys back there. <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh, Lance. my God. Yeah. Because young punk like me is questioning why a guy like Ric Flair would right. finish in a phony sport. Exactly, son. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, man. It's like smarten up, kid. You know? Don't, you know. Yeah, that's interesting. I love to see that that part of him, like the paternal side. One night it was 89, and he was working for WCW. And um, uh, we were all at the bar. And Flair comes in, and then a little while later, um, everybody was waiting to, meet, waiting to meet Flair that night. And then Lance walks in with Jr., maybe one other guy, maybe Shivani or something, because it was a taping in West Palm Beach. So we're all there, all my South Florida buddies. And um, Lance sees me drinking my patented Jack and Coke. And um, I'm like 23 at the time, certainly old enough to be going out. And Lance goes, um, hey, you should be home. <laughs> <laughs> and he knew who I was because we talked earlier that night. He was surprised to see me at the bar. He's like, hey, you should be home in bed by now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I thought that was hey. so great. That was like, I mean, he doesn't accept me like, oh, here's this guy that I knew. He's like, you should, you're a kid. You should be home in bed. He didn't mean it like that, but he was joking around like that. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, and just the way, he, you know, he, he, and I know, I got it. It's like, oh, he's going to mention that line again. But when he was dressing me down for associating myself with Eddie Gilbert, it's interesting. You and I are both, are both our, Memphis, our Memphis debuts were with Eddie Gilbert. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. When I went, you know, well, I mean, I'd, I'd been a referee, but I guess the first time I came out there to do a promo and probably just as nervous as you, and I was, I think, 21, 20 or 21, and, man, you know, just scared to death. But uh, and Lance, the way he scolded, you know, he scolded me, and I had all, of course, and like, and like yourself, I mean, if uh, the reason why, the main reason I didn't follow what they told me to say, because I was actually supposed to go out there and apologize until they suspended me, and then I was supposed to get a little smarty, and then Eddie was... Gilbert was going to come out and make me his manager, but um, I just went full heel, you know, because I had this, I've been practicing this heel, this heel promo for like uh, days, you know, and, and so I was like, had all these great lines that I wanted to get in, but actually the best, the best stuff was just, was the, the stuff that was just improvised, you know, because uh, I responded to Lance, you know, okay, dad. And just yeah, the way, yeah. and he came up to me afterward, and it was it was like a Ward Cleaver moment. He put a he's like I'm so he, like I'm so proud of you. He's like that dad stuff was great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. Which uh, he was just the best backstage, smoking his cigarettes and just being, just being the only you know the way he was. So and and you also have the distinct uh, honor of introducing Mr. Lawler. To the world of the dirt sheets, uh, and and I believe you even have a photograph of, of <laughs> the first time. And and I don't know, man. I mean, it's one of those things. I think I think I mentioned this to you before, and you went, "Yeah." If you know Lawler, he's looking at this thing, and I can just tell he's like intrigued, <laughs> but a little pissed off. <laughs> You know, right. Exactly. That that sums it up. Like, like, who's expertly. this guy? 
who's this guy? Exactly. But, yeah. What What do you remember? And it just about happened that that. Well, I am kind of slow on the uptake sometimes, and I was concentrating on some other stuff. But I heard or I heard a little buzz on the side of me, and Pete Letterberg is telling somebody. Hey, Lawler just discovered the Wrestling Observer for the first time, and, and like, and someone else is like, "That's the first one he ever saw." It was like an animated uh, short, you know. Like, so I look up, and there's Lawler at the table, <laughs> and it's like one of those um, novels, you know, one of those cartoon novels you kids like. And um, I look up, and there's Lawler, and he's opening my thing, and I hear all these people talking because I brought some of the observers just for, you know, like window dressing on the tables to make it look like we had some stuff. And, um, so I, I picked, I could tell this is a moment. So I just shot it and that, that you captured it. Exactly. It's like, uh, interested, but what the fuck? Yeah. Like, and, and, and somebody's going to pay and he like no sold it. I mean, like he didn't say anything. Oh, he didn't sure. look on his face or anything. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. You know, I... Let me ask you that. Yeah. Go no, ahead. Go ahead. Uh, you know, you, you, no, go ahead. I've been asking enough questions. You go ahead. Take, take over the show. <laughs> okay. You know, I've been waiting for this chance all my life. Man. Yes, yes. No, you know, was... like, um, Lawler is always, like, joking and laid back. He shows up at the town. Somebody's driving him. He's all happy and everything. Um, but is there a flip side to that? Did you ever see him, like, because the thing is, he shows up with the expectation that he literally is the king. And he just, like, He's very pleasant to be around to the extreme. Like he always acts like he knows you and everything like we talked mm-hmm. about. Yeah. Oh yeah. But is there like a flip side to that when he actually has to flex his muscle? Oh yeah. To people who don't realize yes. that he is in charge. Yes. And it's shocking. Because it's shocking. It just... Yeah. And it's shocking to see, you know? So like, what's a good example of that? Because to me, it's like everyone already knows he operates in his own bubble within Memphis. Like he considers himself one of the boys but he's in his own bubble. He has these guys that he travels with and everything. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know, it's like hobnobbing at the table at Shoney's <laughs> in Jackson after with all the guys he's being driven no. in his car by his guy. And so it's kind of like, and he really was the King there. So did you ever see when he had to flex his muscle and be like, listen, bitch. Yeah. I'm yeah. Jerry Lawler. Well, well, a little bit like it, it happened happened with me once. Uh, I, oddly enough, it was not he was not upset about the promo that I cut. You know, when I walked through the curtain, you know, I, the way I figured it, uh, if I if I deliver the goods and and they'll everything will be forgiven. If it doesn't go well, then I'll you know I'll probably never be seen on television again, and he'll he'll pop the strap as soon as I walk through the curtain. Uh, but he, right. he no you know, pressure. He, I, yeah, but I walk. Yeah, right. But I walked through, and he waves me over, and he. But he's like, uh, "All right, Scott." <laughs> <You know? laughs> he's like, "All right," and, he, and he's just letting me know. He's just kind of like, "Okay, here, look, 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 fuckhead. Here, here's the deal." <laughs> right. That was that was that was good, and you better be glad that it was good. But don't ever do that again. <laughs> right. <laughs> and right. it was always like, like whenever he was not there, which you know. Uh, when he was off in WWE, because this is when he was working for WWF uh, during that first run. And so his schedule, you know, he was doing announcing and he was also still wrestling, shooting with Bret Hart, I think at the time. And that's when I knew I could really get in some, some lines that I, that ordinarily 
Guys, I, I was talking about the Southern Heavyweight, the, the old original Southern Heavyweight title belt that was up for grabs. And I knew that, I mean, if he were backstage, I would never would have uttered this. But I said, I said, <laughs> I said, I said, yeah, the only reason they had to make a new one is because this one wouldn't go around your waist anymore. <laughs> and, oh, man. He must have yeah. loved that. Oh, he would have killed me. But I know, but I also knew that he, he's not the type that would ever go back and like watch the show. The only way he would have found out is if Guy Coffee had stooged me off, which right. you, always had, you always had to be careful. Oh yeah. man, I, I would sometimes look around and he's and 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 I and I, I like I have mixed feelings about Guy, but I, overall he's you know an institution <laughs> of Memphis wrestling, just one of those interesting characters. But it was almost like he was in the shadows, <laughs> you know. He was like yeah. one, of kings, one of the king's little birds that were just totally, over here, totally. and, it's, and then and then it would be like I heard from Mister Coffee that oh man. And you were sunk. Yeah. It's, not, it's not like you could go confront poor old guy coffee. Uh, as right. a result. It was more like you felt stupid for saying anything in his presence because his allegiance was strictly with the king. It's part of that. It's part of like, and I hate to say, I don't mean this in, in, in a mean spirit, but it's almost like the circle of goofs. In the best possible way, mind you. In the best possible way. Lawler's better looking than all of them. He's funnier than right. all of them. He's like the 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 quarterback, and they're all a bunch of like linemen or the 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 manager refilling the water bottles, you know. And he he's the popular kid, and that's well, kind that's of, kind nar- that's the sign of a great narcissist one hundred and one. Like <laughs> be a big fish in a little pond, surround yourself with lesser than, so you look good. Yeah. It's like when I do my Lawler smirk, my patented Lawler smirk. You know, it's like you know, yeah. Oh, I know. I mean, dude, there's so many, there, there's so many times where, like, uh, somebody pulled me. I think it was, uh, I think it was, I think it was Eddie Marlin who he, he like called me. He's like, he's like, he's like, quit doing that Lawler thing with your mouth and your in your eyes. And I'm like, you mean like a smirk? He goes, yeah, a smirk. Like he was searching. Ah! For that, he, was, he was searching for that word that you know that alluded. No way. But oh, I, that's I, great. I, I, you know, and uh, the thing about it is, I love, I, I really respected uh, those guys. Uh, a lot of them, though, it was funny because like Bill Dundee hated me for years, and Jerry Jarrett goes, well, "Why? Why?" Do-? And he goes, "Well, he's just a smart ass punk." And he goes, "Bill, did you believe the Sheik was a rich oil baron?" <laughs> and, uh... And, and uh, I finally got to interview Bill, and he realized, I mean, hey, that uh, God, I mean, I, 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 I obviously respect the guy, and I know his career. And um, but at the same time, I you you also had to be, I also had to be very careful in in in, in my place because I didn't, I got out of going to a lot of the towns, which some of the boys didn't like. Uh, because I was still, in, I was trying to finish my degree at Memphis State, and so I couldn't go to, I didn't have to go to Louisville all the time, and so I was able to kind of be a, a part-time TV star, which uh, I, you know I caught some flack for, but as a result, a lot of the guys didn't really get it. Other than Doug Gilbert and Tommy Rich, uh, a lot of the guys didn't get to know me that well, and and I was just uh, starting to get to know Eddie uh, uh, pretty well, and I, I met Eddie in eighty. I want to say, yeah, '89, I think, uh, after he had was after he had just joined the booking committee, and it was a show in ja- it was a show in Jackson, Tennessee, and I said something like, "Hey, uh, Eddie, you guys are doing, you know, I, the, you and the booking committee are really doing a good job. You're turning things around." 
<laughs> and he's like, he's like hey, uh, thank you, thank you. And I followed he and Missy Hyatt because I just knew instantly that we had created this bond. I had let him know that I was smart to his business. And I followed <laughs> him to a convenience store uh, as he's getting a, like a like a like a you know a case of beer. And he comes out and sees me standing there and goes, oh, hey. And we end up talking for like 15 minutes. And I had tickets to the show in Memphis the next night. And uh, we ended up talking after after that show. So, that, so when I when I showed up in the bit, it was almost like he didn't he wasn't even really surprised years later when he came back and suddenly I'm a referee. He was like, oh, yep. I remember, yep. Yeah. This, 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 this sounds about right. You know, um, that. Yeah, of course. Of course, you wound up being a referee. Right, right. Yeah, things, I mean, it's just, it kind of, things were done on such a small scale there, like you were saying. Everybody, it was kind of like Mayberry wrestling, because everybody was so familiar, the backstage people. It's funny. The I was about to, I was going to make that same analogy earlier. I was going to say, you know? Mayberry, on a roll, and I didn't want to interrupt you, but I was about to say Mayberry Championship Wrestling. Yeah, very true, and in the best possible way. And I think people are are they're not doing themselves a disservice because they're plain ignorant. They don't know any better, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean it in the literal sense of ignorant. If you don't know about something, you're literally ignorant of it. I don't know about astrophysics. I am ignorant of it. If you did not step foot in the Memphis Territory and see Jerry Lawler and everyone else in their 80s primes, and of course, the great Scott Bowden in his '90s prime. But <laughs> if you were not there to experience, that was, the world that was a very Memphis, short. That, that was a very short window. <laughs> if if you weren't there to experience the world of Memphis wrestling in person, you missed out. There's no way you experienced anything like that in your wrestling career, and there's no way to recapture it on video. Nothing can even tell you what it's like to be in Tupelo, Mississippi and have Jerry Lawler come out and interact with the crowd and make his faces and work the heel, get everyone going crazy, tag matches, rock and roll express, fabulous ones, all kinds of stuff. I don't care where you're from. Memphis was its own thing. And I think it was, I'm from Florida. I think top to bottom and TV show, especially TV show wise, Memphis kicks Florida's ass. And I am a died in the wool, and I'm a what died in the wool Gordon Soley friend and admirer, and he was another boyhood like he was my Lance Russell, obviously. Yeah, and Memphis kicks. I would rather I would. You couldn't pay me to watch Florida now, and look at compare Florida to Memphis 1984 TV shows. You could watch any Memphis 84 TV show right now and be riveted and entertained from the beginning to the end. Florida is Buddy Colt stumbling through some words and Scott McGee. Oh, uh, yeah. Who somehow gets a pin over Ric Flair, I think, on, on television. Well, they had but, a push who they had a push by that point. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it, but even when Florida was hot, uh, let's say in 81 uh, and actually some of the angles that wound up on Florida would then happen on Memphis TV. And I don't know if that was because Lawler was was there or what or if Jarrett and Graham's relationship was so close. But, of course, you know, the infamous angle between assassin number one and dusty Rhodes, where he, he comes back as el santo and then they pretty kind of do the same thing and actually salvador luderoff the man who's responsible for mill Matt. see this see this to me points to more evidence oh here we go here we go again <laughs> there was a relationship between jerry jarrett and salvador luderoff <laughs> because why him why did his name come up on memphis television because it was the only mexican 
promoter of any stature who Jarrett was friendly with. Anyway, uh, that's, right. that's another day. So one thing that we have not done, we we have, uh, and you're right. I mean, if you've never seen that, if you've never heard that that build when Lawler's in trouble and the fans are stomping their mm-hmm. feet, wanting that strap, and then the heel cuts Lawler off. Or Hart does something, trips him up, and he can't pull the straps. He, you know, it's like Popeye in his spinach. And and then, but man, and then finally he gets that strap pulled and he makes the comeback. And you know, I know Hogan's Superman comebacks, you know, were legendary and got and got big pops. Clearly, he studied uh Lawler when he was in the territory. But well, there was, so, there was something dusty because he more well, than likely dusty because he was from Tampa and I've been there for both. The Lawler pop was akin to the Dusty pop. I can't, I can't say one's bigger than the other. When Dusty would elbow oh, someone in the head, or Lawler would. No, no, no. Uh, I was there for both, man. Right, I was there right. for both. Well, I was there for Dusty pops in the set. He, when he was punching Superstar Graham and elbowing Superstar Graham, believe me, he got a Lawler but, pop in Miami okay, Beach. Okay, I assure but, you. But, okay, but my point is though, and and I and I do equate Dusty's elbows with Lawler's punches. The way that you know the you know it was like a I, like a, I don't even know what the sound is. It was like almost like a boom, like boom, a boom you know. that yeah. that would echo throughout the entire yes. building because the people in the upper stands were stomping their feet yeah. while the people in the lower hand stands were screaming it out, yeah. and it just amplified the whole damn thing. Yeah, and it's and, and it's amazing. About it's amazing that the that Mid-South it was, Coliseum is because it had such good um, acoustics that it yeah. was super cool to hear it in that building. Yeah. Well, and what's also amazing is that, you know, the first time I started seeing other TV and and I guess, you know, to me, Lawler's thing was always special because he, he was my guy. But, you know, I realized that Dusty was over like just as much, if not more in, in, in Florida. But what's odd about the whole thing is that the reaction was the same, even though the fans never were in. You know, it's not like Memphis fans. I never saw Florida TV Till I think eighty, like eighty six or eighty seven, when I started tape, finally got into the tape trading thing, um, and I actually, you know, and I, 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 I love the toned down kind of atmosphere of it, it, it for a change. The only, the only TV that I absolutely hated was WWF, and I was so incredibly <laughs> disappointed. I didn't have an appreciation. Yeah. I didn't have an appreciation for Backlund until I started getting some of the uh, Philadelphia shows. Uh, you know the big the big shows, but the yeah. uh, man the w- weekly shows were just man they were just so. Oh, I know. They were terrible, and it, made, and, it, and it made me realize just how at an early age just how special and unique Memphis was. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because we started getting cable it in '83, and it was just man, nothing compared. Yeah, it's like I mean it was really its own thing within wrestling. I think I made that point abundantly clear. But however, do not let me do not let it be said that I'm shitting on Florida wrestling. I think the greatest professional wrestling in the world occurred from 1975 to 1980 in the Sunshine State of Florida. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. Well, hey, well why do you, wait a minute. No, 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 no. there's no question about that. There's no question about that. But Memphis like... by the early 80s, <laughs> I will I will say Florida 75 to 80, I will say Memphis from then until 84, 85. I you know what I feel like right now. I feel like Bruno Sammartino climbing through the ropes and, and Larry Zabisco Larry Zabisco just smacked me with the weakest chair shot known to man. But yeah, I, I get Florida. No, 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 no. You compare Memphis to Which does not say that you're. No, no, no. But compare. Okay, but compare a house show in Memphis eighty uh seventy six to Florida seventy six. Oh my God, you poor people. You don't even know. Come on, 
Dude, King Curtis, know. Dusty Rhodes, every star from the 60s who wasn't done wrestling yet, every Lullard, upcoming star Lullard, from the 70s. Lullard, Lullard Funk, 60-minute draw. Uh, they recreate the whole uh, quest for the title. Lawler beats Harley Race. Sam Bass dies in the car accident. He comes back the next week, beats Story Funk Jr. and a Texas death match. Earn the right to go after Funk. I mean, come on. Those are major events. <laughs> I can tell you major events and angles all the time. What about day in, day out? Okay, the actual right. card. You're Wait talking Frank Morrell <laughs> against King oh. Curtis in Florida. You know, hey. like hey. you're talking El Topo versus Bobo Brazil. Come on, Florida was Frank, the mecca. Frank I would put Florida 75 to 80 up against any promotion anywhere, anytime. No question about well, it. Well, it would beat Memphis in 1980, but only because Lawler was on the shelf. Okay, so yeah, but let's talk. 80, about, I didn't even see a lot of, but I saw a lot of Florida in 80. And 80 was a stellar year in Florida. But right, I will give all of I will give I will give all of the 80s to Memphis over Florida. Okay, so 81, Memphis turns the corner on Florida, and you know it. Because that 8081, I'm not that familiar with, but by 8283, oh, Memphis was amazing. Oh, come on. I've seen some of it here and there. You know, Onita Fuchi. Um, yes, the gang war. Yeah, 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 all that. Yeah. I haven't, because it's that you can't find it in good quality. So I'm aware okay. of it, but I haven't seen like. Oh, man. Okay. I haven't well, seen like every show, but I'm well aware of it. Yeah. It was just blander back then because the set was more oh. boring. Like they just plop a ring out there, and it's like Lance's hair didn't like. That was um, the beauty of it. <laughs> yeah, but I know. It's like, you know, I prefer, I you know, know, a little I, later. I, don't really, I, I, I wished, I, even as a kid, I wished, man, I wish the ring looked better. And the belt, <laughs> I, I, I was like, because I love the belts. I was such a big belt mark. And man, gosh. <laughs> I mean, until like 82, and they finally, you know, got, you know, one of those Reggie Park belts. I don't know who, I think maybe Eddie Marlin was making them, you know, in a basement somewhere, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, they maybe, did maybe. not have great belts. Oh. Now that you mention it. Even the one uh, I never signed, even... he's an artist, and the one he designs, the CWA World Championship, is just, looks like it was made in a shop class, you know. <laughs> <laughs> With all the things on it. Maybe it was made, made to melt, make, Ahem. Maybe it was made to look like a Batman thing with all the little plates on it, you know. Uh, or they would come out with like the the world tag title trophy, which I always always yeah, speculate. Trophies suck. Yeah, it's one of Eddie Marlin's bowling awards. Um, well, let's uh, talk really quickly though, because so how many of these Lawler matches in '81 did you see? Because actually, this is supposed to be a Lawler's Lost Matches. Segment. Right. Good luck with that. Yeah, clearly we've <laughs> we, fun editing that one. Yeah, who's clearly, editing this one? Clearly, we've lost Blue? our way. Well, if only we had an intro. Uh, but uh, uh, so after the Lawler Funk angle, the empty arena match. Which, uh, when did you? When did now that aired on Florida TV? I assume because shortly that that, that was taped on April sixth, nineteen eighty nine, and Lawler starts appearing fairly regularly in Florida starting on May 29th. Uh, and I believe uh, Dory is book is has the book, and he debuts against. Mm -hmm. In Orlando, May 29th. Um, and then uh, the very next night as a as a match who with a guy who is in one of my top five. Top five guys. Who missed, top no, he <laughs> although he did get stuck with Diamond <laughs> as a tag partner against right. the Fox. And I'm like, what the right, right. He's got he's got he gets Mike Graham, Charlie Cook, yeah. and Don Diamond yeah. as his tag team partners against the Fox. No, but those guys were being no, but those guys were being pushed. However, I think Dusty knew that, you know, let me just tell you something. Um, Lawler's hey, Dusty was keeping Lawler down. Not, <laughs> well, 
Okay, it could very well be, but however, all those guys were really pushed. Don Diamond worked Tatsumi Fujinami for the title when they had a big, big show in 1980. Charlie Cook was being pushed inexplicably. Definitely the worst African-American wrestler that I've ever gazed upon, and that includes Fatback Brown, Rufus R. Jones. Oh. Um, and who was the other one? Uh, Mike Graham. Oh, I, Come thought on. the, I thought you were going to say the other bad black wrestler. <laughs> I couldn't think of any more jivey, funky, Japanese stereotypes, so I just... I usually try to make it a, a series of three, but... Uh, I, I think you just got into racist. You know, my... You know, I'm just quoting. Jesus, talk about racist. Play any Lawler interview from 1978. Hey, hey, go talk about but, the kid. But, uh, hey, I didn't do it. I didn't go to Memphis and become Jerry Lawler. It's there for the world to see. But um, I got to tell you one. Let me just ask you this. This is another question. Um, okay, so Lawler can lay the law down because he's Jerry Lawler. And everyone he faces is like nine feet taller than him and 300 pounds bigger than him. Is he actually a tough guy in any way, shape, or form? Lawler? I met him as a, I met him as a kid, and I never got the impression or intimidation from him that I've gotten from almost everyone else in wrestling. I feel like he's a regular guy when I'm in front of him. Uh, I I think let me, let me let me just say this. I I think he's tougher than uh, most people give him credit for. I'm not gonna look. I'm not under any delusion. Uh, Jerry Jarrett seemed to indicate that that Lawler can handle himself if Harley Race tried something. I'm, I'm not, <laughs> and I'm not, and I'm not right, and I'm not saying that. But I I don't believe Harley's account though of 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 throwing a briefcase. I think you know supposedly Harley was upset, and a lot. I think Lawler did ruffle some in the. Uh, I say the NWA like it was really like this. Uh, like a standalone thing because every office was a little bit different, but I think it did bother some people that of the way they handled the the push with changing the finishes, announcing one result and then mm. overturning the decision. Oh, the, they later reviewed that Lawler, uh, you know, right. won the match or whatever. They overruled the decision. But, but, but a lot of that was because, you know, these guys were being paid to come in and put over this kid and granted a, a relative unknown, uh, but, you know, if you got 10,000 people out there and you're making a pretty good payday and the promoter explained to you up front what he wanted you to do, uh, I think you go out there and do it, you know, and, and, and you're a, you're a pro. Um, right. But really the only ones who were really that cooperative were like, uh, were, were Bobo Brazil, uh, you know, but Lawler didn't beat a lot of those guys, uh, clean at all. Uh, on the way to the top, or even True. pin him. I mean, he lost by DQ a number of times, but he would just kind of right. come out there and then say that he won. And they, they would do some creative editing and and the whole Andre the Giant fiasco, uh, where you know yeah. Lawler loses but sends the photos to Bill after and uh, right. you know says, Jesus, hey, yeah, yeah, you know, and even you know what, even then Lawler couldn't even get on the cover. You beat Andre the Giant, you can't even get on the cover of uh, yeah. of the wrestler, which. I remember the first one of the first Lawler autograph signings that that I went to. He had uh, he had finally gotten on the cover of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, and I said, I said, man, um, God, you know, I've been collecting magazines since '78, King, and you finally made the cover. He goes, Yeah, he was like miffed. It was like this. It was almost like the same look of him looking at the Observer. why because he goes, Yeah, it only took me ten years. <laughs> oh, get out of here! Jeez. Oh, that bothered him. I mean, it really did. 
Wow. Uh, yeah. Well, as you know, in Memphis, like everything, and you guys have some teams. I mean, you're not there anymore, but Memphis has some teams now. Uh, I'm just peripherally aware. I detest sports in all forms, but when I was in Memphis, um, you every other billboard. Tell me, I'm not right. Is like Jerry Lawler for Deluxe, whatever. It's like we walked into a barbecue place. And it's like his picture's right there. Jerry Lawler work well because it's like wherever you go, it's a Jerry Lawler thing. Yeah. The newspaper had like three different companies with Jerry Lawler ads. Yeah. Uh, I oh, and you asked me earlier about about Lawler throwing his throwing his weight around. Well, he, he um, I guess he thought one night that I was not laying my kicks in well enough to Randy Hales, although I was really trying to kick the shit out of him, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but even then, on but many it, levels, it, there's it, a lot to unpack there. I was <laughs> kicking Randy Hales, but not hard enough. How does that even work? <laughs> and, and and Lawler, you know, well, he he never, dude, you know, his eye hand coordination, without a doubt, he broke Jimmy Hart's stone. Yeah. without a doubt, he yeah. broke Ali. And I could have been the next one had he been that pissed off. But luckily, I guess I just only bothered him a little bit. But he. Yeah, Sock. but you notice that's he, it's only Ronnie managers that he does that to, though, dude, right? He, that's why I'm well, saying. No, no. I, I mean, if he was, if you're sitting in the dressing room and he comes in pissed, are you literally scared? Yeah, like dude, you're gonna yes. be if a Joe Duke yes. is pissed at you? Yeah, yeah. Like dude, this guy's gonna literally kick well, my ass. You not think that? Not that really. It's just, I guess this is the it's it's less about the personal badass Lawler side of him and the power. That he has. Well, the power I know. I'm saying and, apart and, from the power. Like, just say he's yeah, a guy in a no, bar. I get it. I he's get not it. Jerry Lawler. He's a guy me, in a bar. Yeah. I. I. Let me just say this, man. And and not that Lawler would hang out in bars and put himself in that position, right? Because he didn't. Not anywhere. Amusement but, park. But, you know what but, I'm saying? Are just you, a guy. But, but just I am a, telling you. I. If you think that he wasn't challenged, often and regular and and right. from, what I, from what I understand, okay, uh, he could more than handle himself. And right. I and you also have to think, dude. All those people came through Memphis, and no one ever ever tried to cross him. I mean, everyone was you well because of the because of the power though. Because yeah, then it's but, like oh, but, this guy but, didn't play didn't play ball. The, the only one, the only thing, the only time that a guy took liberties with him, I can't believe they even showed this match on, on television. Was in '85 when uh, they were doing that deal with Crockett. And Lawler's in a six-man tag with uh, Dusty and Magnum against the Andersons and Tully. Ole Anderson locks him up with, with a front waist lock the entire match, and huh. and doesn't sell a thing of Lawler's. Wow. Entire, and, and I can, and it's I mean I guess there's, and it's just complete chaos. And I guess they figured let's just go ahead and and air it, but. Man, it, it was amazing. That's the only time that I, I ever saw any guy take liberties with him. And and from what I understand, Dick the Bruiser uh, step, you know, said something to Lawler about the way a finish was handled and went after him and, and supposedly Lawler handled him. So I I don't know. I, I don't know. It's dude, you know what kind of business this is. But I, I think he's tougher than most people give him credit for. But I will say this, though, the whole thing about you know, carrying the NBA title. I think he was right there, you know, with Flair. I mean, Flair, I would consider Flair a tough guy in general. I mean, you know, he, I, he's not like a badass, like a, like a Rick Rude or uh, right. a King Kong or some of these guys you, you hear about, but he's a tough dude, man. I mean, you you gotta be tough. Yeah, Flair, to, Flair was, was bigger. Really, he's like more of an athlete. 
Yeah, well, but Lawler was a great natural athlete, though, and so was Dusty. I mean, and I'm sure in a fight, Dusty could probably handle himself, too. I mean, yeah, like definitely. Dusty, yeah. I got both factors from him. Like, A, this guy could kill me, and B, but Lawler, the aura. Yeah, the but, aura that came off of Dusty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Lawler's thing is more the power of who he is and his charisma. Yeah, I, I you know, there's some of that because it, it was just, it, it's and it's amazing to me that, that again, not with getting into too many specific, but when you, it's like you and I, I don't know each other that well, but whenever we've talked, it's like I, I totally get where you're coming from, especially with your observations about Lawler and the Memphis territory. Uh, you know, when you describe Lawler as being a beautiful liar. And I and you know I I I like I like King a lot, uh, but I will say that it's amazing to me how he can get away with absolutely anything he wants. Yeah. Uh, in Memphis, even to this day, and journalists just continue to eat it up, and 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 everybody just buys his uh, narrative of events, and and the way he positions himself to get in front of the camera before <laughs> anybody else mm-hmm. can. In a, in a in a public dispute uh, or or uh, embarrassing display or a display that would be embarrassing to most is nothing to him. <laughs> right. Just, uh, well, I mean, he must feel so Teflon by now. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Like, no, he Cornette. must just sit there. He must sit there in his coke room, and if you know him, you know what I mean. Cola. The, he's yes. a collector of vintage Coca Cola memorabilia and stuff. He must sit there in his coke room in his house and just think to himself, God damn, I am so lucky. I can't think of anyone other than a few people like that I would rather be and have their life with a few exceptions and bumps and personal, you know, hijinks. But I'm saying, like, how great is that to be a big fish in a little pond like forever and just you're the man? Yeah. It's almost like, did, did he sign a deal with the devil? Is there, you know, how can somebody, <laughs> and be... you know, he even, he, he overcomes things. It's like, it's like trials and tribulations happen to him. And then he goes on TV and he's like, well, you know, it was a really bad year, but, uh, and then it's like, it's like over and it's like on to the next thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just the longevity of it. You know, if you, if you had mm-hmm. told me that, that he was, he would be the one, the one out of Dusty Rhodes, Superstar Guy, all these guys, all these legendary promo guys, that he would be the one to transition to WWE and be their, gosh, they're really their one half of the main announce team for 27, really reinvent himself, and almost to the point mm-hmm. of, of you know, I've I've explained it almost as like, okay, that Jerry Lawler died. You know that sports mm-hmm. hero of mine, and then this guy kind of came in. <laughs> it's almost like yeah. another another actor replaced him <laughs> along the way, and the and the character yeah. and the character went a different direction. Uh, but I, but that said, um, he you know he changed with the times. The Attitude Era totally uh, catered to his toilet humor sensibilities, which Vince McMahon happened to love. Um, and was, you know, and I love Lawler's stuff. And initially for the first, you know, four or five years, he was in yeah, WWE. the Bret Hart stuff. That was yeah. my favorite of him up there. That, yeah. was, that was classic Lawler heel. Like when he was yeah. turning heel on the audience. Yeah. That was around the same time period that he was insulting the studio audience on a weekly basis. Remember that? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, and it was, and it was funny to hear Vince's reaction to it because it was almost like he, I, 
you know, they say that Vince didn't really watch a lot of other people's wrestling. And I'm sure at some points, maybe he had seen some Memphis, but when he and Brett are having that big match at uh, SummerSlam and he does the whole gimmick with the leg and uh, Doink replaces him and then it turns into a wild brawl where Lawler's leg's not really hurt and the whole thing. And Vince's reaction to it is just, it's its almost like this is the first time he's seen a Memphis-style match because that's exactly what it felt like. It was like a Memphis match having its splash in, in WWE. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And it was great. Yeah, I thought it was great television. Um I, I think, think he was great when he first came. He was like yeah. heel king, and he was great. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, looking at the looking at 1981 in Florida, he was there quite a bit. We covered some of the matches uh, already. Uh, writing, you know, Dory Funk Jr. I think is booking. Obviously, uh, I think Florida almost got more mileage out of the empty arena match than Memphis did. Although Memphis did draw some good houses uh, with it afterward, but they they didn't sell out the place, and I'm sure it wasn't cheap to bring Funk in. And you know, as frugal as Jerry Jarrett was, let's let's put you know Dream Machine. Let's just turn him hill again and put him on top against Lawler because he's a lot cheaper. Uh, yeah, but. Look at looking at some of these unique matches. Uh, July fourteenth through the sixteenth, uh, Lawler with Mike Graham beats Dory Funk Jr. and Terry Funk. Uh, just the match listing here: Mammy Beach uh, with Dory Funk Jr. Again the next night with Funk Jr. Uh, double count out of the ring. A lot of people don't even didn't even know about this match until I published some photos from a Japanese wrestling magazine that there was actually a second match with Hulk Hogan uh, in St. Pete. In uh, July of '81, uh, July 18th. Oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah, yeah. The what? Lawler's wearing the white on the home court uh, in Memphis when he gets the DQ win. That was heavily edited later on after Hogan won the uh, WWF title and they were invading Memphis. But uh, yeah, Lawler's wearing the orange tights with the black boots. This could be an obsession. Um, <laughs> the fact that I, that, I, that I can distinguish the two by what Lawler was wearing that night. No, I remember uh, stuff like I have a photo. I will say I have a photo, a photo, a photographic memory for wrestling, and it's a really good thing that I'm a photographer because I know dates and everything based on just because all my photos are in chronological order and everything, and I lived it, and I just know it. Like you know, it's if I can't picture it, I'm not sure of it. Like all the years I didn't shoot or whatever. I'm not sure of this or that, but anything I shot, like I'm so aware of it, uh, what was going on during that period. It's almost like a photo library in your mind that you're just flipping through. Yeah, and the yeah. literal one in my office. Very nice. Um, but yeah, um, I saw a lot of the Lawler Funk matches when they brought them down here, and they were great. It was one of the best Funk matches I've ever seen, as a matter of fact. They pulled his pants down, and he pretended he didn't know, and his bare ass out, and he was like, like up and down the aisles, like challenging people to a fight with his whole ass sticking out. And then Terry goes and turns the steps over. We had these big wooden steps in, in Miami and under it just happened to be the ring crew's entire arsenal of like nuts and bolts and tighteners and everything. Everything went everywhere. It was one of the classic Terry Funk chair throwing brawls all over the building. He was like a one man show. Well, back and, and- to my original, and those punches between the two, I mean... Yeah, but I, back to my original point, having said that, yeah, Lawler was the baby face, but he did not have that magic Elvis charisma that he worked under in Memphis because he was not the same guy to the Florida fans. Well, they yeah. Showed yeah. Us some, they, showed us, they showed us some cool clips and everything, but I would say that Jerry Lawler in Florida was probably a Mike Graham-plus level of excitement. 
<laughs> he was well, not well. like no, 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 no. Because first, yeah. let me know. Mike Graham was over. He was a Florida favorite. He was a stalwart. Um, it's not a diss, but people weren't like, "Oh my God, Jerry Lawler's coming." That was not the buzz I, I, because I, they I, didn't know. Because they just you... didn't know, and and he didn't. His magic did not transfer. He showed okay. more magic in Tupelo, Mississippi, in front of 300 people than he did in Miami, just because the whole relationship was not there yeah. with yeah, the, the audience. Bond, the bond and and him being a hometown yeah. guy. You know, if you right. grew up, hey, listen, if if you grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and that fact is brought up several times, you know, with Treadwell High School, Memphis State University, even though he didn't come anywhere near graduating, uh, you know, <laughs> I am Memphis, Tennessee. And you don't have a pro sports team, that's going to resonate, right? But it it, it, it it is weird for me to see him pull the strap uh, in Atlanta and in Florida, and there not be this big pop. For no, like, no, like, believe me, there like, was what? no gasp. There was it was it was on deaf ears. There was no gasp. No, wait a minute, Dad, No, wait a minute. Wait, I mean, you're you're being a bit harsh because I've seen like the tape. There's the tape fist match between Lawler and Funk. And, and it's so funny. Whenever I post, I'm not something, saying he wasn't over. By all means, he was completely over. You're saying, incredible. You say like, and... like mid card, a solid mid carder. He was like a maybe a dud. No, 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 no. I'm not maybe saying that. I'm saying no, no, no. I'm not saying that. I'm saying one under the main event, except with no of with none of that long term connection that either the fans had with Dusty or that the fans in Memphis had with Florida. It would be yeah. kind of the same if Dusty came. They'd be like, oh, my God, that's Dusty Rhodes. But it's not like they grew up with him for the last well, 10 years. Well, that's the thing. Like, uh, when WWF was invading Memphis, like, it's amazing that they, uh, that uh, given Graham's relationship with Jarrett, that Dusty didn't appear more. Uh, and, and I think I think when, because Lawler was appearing in Florida at the same time Dusty was NWA world champion, uh, I, I think they could have done something, man, with uh, – because it just made sense. Lawler's beating all these big name guys. You know, they they didn't have him lose for months after he came back, and he's beating Jack Briscoe clean with an inside cradle out of a figure four. He's beating Terry Funk. He's beating Dory. Uh, all these big names. It, I think, uh, man, if they had brought Dusty in, uh, you know, and it starts out a baby face. I man, even with Dusty being a baby face, Lawler being a baby face, and they, there's no way they could have agreed on a finish. Um, I just think that could have been huge in, in 81. Um, I think, think that, you that, never see those. I think you never see that kind of thing because it's the same reason you don't see members of Van Halen playing with black Sabbath. It's because <laughs> they stay in their own lane. Seriously. I mean, think of all the great collaborations there could be in music, but they don't do it. They could easily do it. They don't. Yeah. They're all friends, yeah, just point. like wrestling. Like Jimmy Page could call well, up Ron Wood, start a band tomorrow. But yeah, they're not friends. But they're it's it's yeah. I mean, associates. I mean, they're not friends in rock either. But you know what I mean. Yeah. It's like they're yeah, associates. Yeah. They're of the same level in the same profession. Yeah. But they don't do it because Dusty doesn't want to dip his peanut butter in Lawler's chocolate and vice versa. I wouldn't <laughs> want to do it if I was in my if I was the king of my pond. I'm looking at let Dusty Rhodes come in here. Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Um, well, but but again, my point in in '84, you know, they have this big card uh, that Jarrett builds up, and at first, actually, he calls it Starcade. Uh, that was the first name for it, and then I believe it was by the time it finally happened, it was Star Wars. Uh, so you're ripping off uh, uh, world class original of on both counts. Rocket, yeah, I know, right? Exactly. There was. 
<laughs> yeah, all right. Anyway, my point, hey, my point is, um, there was there uh, supposed to be a WWF. I think it was only going to be the second WWF show. Uh, Bourbon bombed uh, for some reason. Obviously, Jared's concerned because this is a, you know they're coming to his backyard. Uh, so I believe they're supposed to have a show on Sunday. So they load up this card, and Memphis never built up like a big show because they had to promote weekly. And so, mm -hmm. you know, they didn't have this. I guess the thinking was if we had this build up to this big show that nobody's going to go to the shows before, we're not going to get too far ahead of ourselves. There might be a, a deal where we say, if you win this match, then you're going to get a shot at the world champion. But that would be mm -hmm. the only way that they, they would play their hand about what was to come. Because if you did get too far ahead of yourself, people might not. I mean, they wanted people to come every single week. Right, they wanted that that four or five thousand who would come every single week, the diehards, and then you knew something was really taken off if they got that, if they if the crowd got up into that eight thousand nine thousand range on a steady basis, that's when you knew you were onto something, right? And because yeah. uh, you know people had these memories of Memphis selling out every week, they did not. Uh, there actually some really poor weeks uh, with tons of talent. Almost, it's almost like they had too much talent. Uh, which sounds crazy, but I think that when Bill Watts came around that time, Jarrett remembers it as being, we were on sellouts and Bill Watts was curious. Well, not, not exactly the case. They had been doing well earlier that year, but they were actually, they were actually taking a dip and hurting too. So there was that mutual uh, interest in, in, in the, in the talent trade. Uh, but, you know, when Dundee went there and started doing some Memphis stuff and got over the fact that, Hey, young, you know, young, good-looking guys who are smaller—they don't have to be ex-jocks can draw just as much money as true, legitimate athletes. I think that, I think that really opened up uh, Bill Watts's uh, eyes to to what could be possible with with a faster-paced style uh, wrestling, mm -hmm. um, yeah. and maybe and maybe less based in reality too. Uh, with that, uh, but looking at some of these other dates with Lawler in Florida. Uh, I, and, and again, I'm not without looking at the Memphis results because th this this just stands out to me. Some of these August '81 results, I believe that's when Lawler lost temporarily temporarily lost a loser leave town match, um, oh. and then through some external <laughs> through some uh, creative booking, let's say. Um, and one of the few times they played around with the stipulation, Lawler was able to come back. Uh, but Lawler's in there for, gosh, August 11th through the 16th. And three of these dates, really, or four of the dates really stand out to me. Uh, a $5,000 bounty match with Buzz Sawyer. And, oh, I think I was there for that. Oh, that was an amazing match. Yeah. 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 Oh, and guess what? Lawler grabbed the mic. Lawler did some patented mic work before the um, <laughs> match. And like, only Lawler. Like, how, how does that get arranged? Because you know that nine out of ten guys never go near the night the mic but Lawler gets in there he had a blue outfit on there's that photogenic memory uh, um I know it's photographic all you people out there relax and Lawler's in his blue outfit I got some great photos of that night and he gets on the mic and he says a patented Lawlerism in the direction of Buzz Sawyer Buzz Sawyer was a machine I will say he was one of the three greatest natural workers I've ever seen uh, Barry Windham also another one yes yeah and probably Jack Briscoe another one uh, that would be my top three natural workers mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who like were like the perfect wrestling body and all that who was the laziest, who, who, who was the laziest of those three I want to say Barry Windham oh my god 
I saw Barry Windham in more long, grueling, athletic, violent, brutal, hard-hitting, bump matches. Before anyone knew who he was from 1980, that was 182, 84. Not effortless. Well, maybe for him it was. Yes. He used to go flying over the the top rope without touching it. But how good could he have been, though, man? I mean, you know what I mean? I I just... I, I love Wyndham, and I, and I had, and again, this is one of those results. I, I never knew that Lawler and Wyndham were on the same team, but they were in Florida, uh, if not '81, then in '82, and a six-man tag, which I just can't see those two together. And then I don't think they had a single match till WWF, and that's when Wyndham was just, you know, in that stalker getup. Yeah, yeah. Just... Lawler's kind of a weird thing in Florida because I mean, the way he fits in because he's really like his own thing. Um, well, he's, not he doing, he's, Jr. he's not there doing TV, he, so that hurts, right? Exactly. I mean, listen, if Lawler came in here and was allowed to do his thing, if that would get over to the level in Memphis, I highly doubt it, but it would get over a lot more than it did. He did not do TV. They didn't, like, give him the big, you know, it's kind of like they assumed that people knew who he was, and I guess they did, and he was certainly over. But if they let him loose, he could have been way bigger than he was down here. It's yeah. it's just a matter of what the fans knew of him. Well, and I and also have to I also have to question why put <laughs> there are like six different matches with Hiro Matsuda. I mean, yeah, it's, it's almost it's, like I didn't I didn't see any of that. Yeah. It's almost like a rib on Lawler. Like like who who thought that those two styles would match yeah. up well? I, I would give anything, and he has him on <laughs> not one, not two, but three. <laughs> Straight dates in August, uh, the 14th, the 15th, and the 16th in Sarasota, <laughs> Key West, and Fort Myers. Holy shit. I mean, he hated yeah, Rick Flair's He hated Rick Flair's chops. I mean, oh man, oh man. I can only imagine what he thought of being in there with uh with Matt Suda. And we also have to credit his Florida appearances, I think, for the rebirth of Coco Ware has sweet brown sugar, clearly influenced by Skip Young. Oh. And Skip- I always wondered about that. Exactly. It has to be. Has to be. Well, right. Hey, well, listen, Howard. Look, man, this has been uh, j- just an absolute blast, as I assumed it would, which is why I did very little prep for this. It was it was really the equivalent of a Memphis TV format where you just kind of throw it together at the last minute and you just kind of let it happen. Uh, I feel like we could go another hour if uh, if time allowed. But unfortunately, this is the expiration of time match today. And we've got to let you go. But uh, I hope you come back and talk to us again. And I want to see some of these photos of Lawler in his blue tights against Buzz Sawyer. <laughs> I will post it. I will they, post wait, wait, wait. It. Was it blue or was it purple? Blue. Uh, blue. Okay. Um, oh, uh, no, no, no. I've seen his purple in 1985, Milan High School, with teaming with Tommy Rich <laughs> against Eddie Gilbert and Mr. Ito. There. How's that oh. for your Asperger Club, Scott Bowden? Wow. Take that. Oh, you you had that like a you were it's it's like you're hitting me with these foreign objects. Like here I am, I'm shaking hands with you after we've we've gone to a 60 minute stalemate (laughs) or 90 minutes. I wanted to show you that I could break out an obscure fact. (laughs) I wanted to show you the power of my photographic Uh, memory. uh, Well done, my friend. Well done, (laughs) Howard Baum, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be right back with more KFR right after this. And now Jack Briscoe sets his man and is going for that figure four. 
One mistake, it opened for just one second, and Terry Funk moves in. A count of three, a count of three, and there's a new world heavyweight wrestling champion. Terry Funk has just set wrestling history. The only time in wrestling history that two brothers have ever held the World Heavyweight Championship. Dory Funk held it for four and a half years, and now Terry Funk has just achieved a lifetime dream. We're going to see this again in slow motion, and watch carefully now as Jack Briscoe, the champion, notice he's open for just a split second. Terry Funk obviously has studied films on the champion. He watched him very carefully. He found this one flaw in the application of the figure four. Inside Cradle... And in 28 minutes and 20 seconds of this one-fall, one-hour time limit match, Terry Funk has defeated the world heavyweight champion, Jack Briscoe. And Terry Funk, now you hear the ring announcer. There you see it. And Terry Funk, I think now, just now, becoming aware of what has happened to him. Terry Funk, dazed but jubilant. Obviously ecstatic now with, uh, with joy as he has achieved a lifetime ambition. He has achieved the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. Here in the dressing room at Miami Beach at Convention Hall, I have with me now the new NWA World Heavyweight Champion, Terry Funk, the man who lived in the shadow of his brother for over four years, has finally achieved that pinnacle, the World Heavyweight Wrestling Championship. And may I just say congratulations. Thank you very much, Gordon. It's the proudest day of my life. Naturally, it is. Well, I might just say this, of course, that Jack Briscoe and the NWA, when they agreed to allow Terry Funk to substitute for his brother, Dory Funk Jr., Jack Briscoe also had a return clause in the contract saying that in the event he lost, you would meet him this coming Tuesday in Tampa at the Armory. Now, wait one second. I was under the assumption that I was going to go ahead and have the return match in Amarillo, Texas. No, the, the champion stated in, in the contract itself that he had his choice of locations. In Tampa, I've got to wrestle the man in a rematch in Tampa. That is exactly correct. Not Amarillo? No, sir. Well, I'll tell you one thing is I like the people of Florida. I love the people of Florida. But I'm countryfied, and I'm Texas's pride. And first of all, I'm going to defend this belt for my mother, my mother's state of Texas. And I'll come down there, and I'll wrestle a man in Tampa. And I'll tell you what, I intend on being something that Jack Briscoe never was. And that's an offensive champion, not a defensive champion, not the kind of champion that continues to run to the ropes constantly during the match like Briscoe has done. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to take the fight to this man and prove to you people that I will be the finest champion that this world has ever seen in professional wrestling. Well, of course, at one point in the match when the referee was injured, he did have you pinned for easily a five count. I don't recall that at all. I don't recall that. And we are back on Kentucky Fried Wrestling, and we certainly hope you enjoyed that fabulous first installment of You Dropped a Baum on Me. I, I, uh, will, you, will you stop? Uh, you're killing me, dude. Seriously. <sighs> the Gap Band? And now I'm going to be singing You Dropped a Baum on Me, or You Dropped a Bomb on Me all day now. Thanks a lot. Well... Anyway, I just want to remind you all that Kentucky Fried Wrestling is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. You can show your support for the show by visiting MemphisWrestlingTees.com, where you can find a wide array of mostly legal Memphis wrestling merchandise. For Brian Last, this is Scott Bowden saying bye-bye, everybody. 
The announcers on this program are selected and paid by parties other than this station, namely the promoters of championship wrestling.